Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. That's a new one. Hey, okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Perf Web 25, Part 2. Renal function, AKI, and fluid balance are going to be our topics this morning. Uh, let me very quickly get through the obligatory things that we have to do. We're on all of the social media, as you can see here. Um, I need you to please, on the YouTube, become a subscriber. That's how you do it. Check it out. It's showing you. Subscribe and click the notification icon so that you will get notifications of that. Um, also want to remind you about our program uh, next month, the, uh, the New Orleans Conference Online Edition. That's going to be good for 106 Category 1 CEU by the ABCP. And I'll make an announcement, too, before we end the show as well. So remind me about that as, uh, again. Like us, please, on Facebook. And please, please, please follow us on the Twitter. Um, then we also have a phone line that you can call in. And there it is right there. And the trusty phone is right here. I can answer it. You can be live on the air. And today we're giving away a special prize if you call in and ask a question. Not gonna tell you what the special prize is until you call in, but you will get a special prize. It could be one of these stylish PerfWeb cups. Could be, and this isn't my PerfWeb Yeti, but we have PerfWeb Yetis. Um, we have visits with John. We have babysitting for men. We have crawfish boils. We have a lot of fun. So. Please, please, please do those things for me. It's very important. We, I think we're uh, over 800 subscribers now on our YouTube channel, and we we need to get to 1,000. It's really important. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's very easy to do. Get a Gmail account, go to our YouTube channel, click subscribe, and then click the notification buttons. Even if you don't want to click the notification buttons, click the subscribe. It's really important to us. Okay, our topics today are organ crosstalk, fluid uh, balance and fluid overload and how that is deadly. Um, and uh, you're following it up with your last talk on, uh, ECMO, uh, on right, ECMO and the contribution of ECMO to, to acute kidney injury. Exactly. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So you remember John Ingram from last night? He's down at Florida. I've been a perfusionist for many, many years down at Florida Advent Hospital now with an eight bed ECMO unit that is over full. So they have other units having to take the patients, opening up a 32 bed dedicated ECMO advad uh, ICU. The hospital at Florida Advent in Orlando is unbelievably huge. I've never seen anything that big in a single place before in my life. I thought I've seen big hospitals. That place is enormous and it's beautiful. I mean, Disney was involved in the in in mm -hmm. some of the uh, some of the donations and the units and stuff. And it's uh, there's a child they have a children's uh, hospital, very 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 patient centered. It looks like and a very calming environment. I was really impressed by their hospital, I really was. And then next to John, you remember Tammy from previous programs, Tammy Lee Sparacino. Um, Tammy is a graduate from the Texas Heart Institute. Uh, I believe it was either 1987 or 2003, one or the other. And uh, Tammy, <laughs> Tammy uh, it works with us here in Houston. 
and she spent a, a, a lot of her career at Memorial Hermann, uh, in the Memorial Hermann system, or Memorial City. Uh, a lot of experience with perfusion and ECMO. And next to her is my adopted son, Min, uh, Min Tran. He's a graduate of Texas Heart Institute, 2013? Uh, 2008. 2008, 2008, that's right. And uh, Min used to work down at Methodist and TMC, did a whole bunch of ECMO and VADs and very high acuity patients. And now today he works up here with us in the uh, northern Houston area mm -hmm. and still seeing a whole lot of ECMO, oh, yeah. even though he left the ECMO Center <laughs> for another ECMO Center that's out in the community, which I think we're seeing mm -hmm. more of the ECMO shifting out to the communities. Okay, so that's the, I think that's the end of my, my opening remarks. Is there anything that I forgot? Nope. Okay. So I'm going to just let uh, this go right over to John and let him start his uh, discussion on organ crosstalk, which I think is a fascinating conversation and uh, something that I think most of us really don't spend a lot of time thinking about and how everything interplays with each other, all these organs, and uh, how important it is <clears throat> to keep all of them in a uh, normal physiologic state so you don't have these other unintended consequences. It's never just a single thing. Right, and that, um, that's where you get this title, Organ Crosstalk, and uh, I'm glad you asked me to do this because I didn't know all that much about it myself and it kind of forced me to uh, look into this and research it. So, title of this is uh, Organ Crosstalk, and I don't have any disclosures on this, but um, let's talk about what is organ crosstalk? And the, and the background of it, of it is that if you go back over 70 years, it became apparent that acute kidney injury rarely occurred in isolation. And since the 1950s, they noticed that there was abnormal chest x-rays that were observed frequently as a frequent occurrence whenever somebody had kidney failure. It seemed they also had abnormal um, uh, pulmonary conditions as well. And so it was these observations that led to the suspicion that there was some type of organ crosstalk occurring here. Also though, the high rate of mortality seen in acute kidney injury is a result of some underlying systemic response that often leads to multiple organ failure. So based on these facts, there seems to be something below the, below the surface, so to speak, that's going on. And just to have an isolated organ suffer injury you would think you could keep it to that, and it tends to just completely spread mm -hmm. to, uh, to the other ones. And so what's the definition of organ crosstalk? Well, clinical studies have demonstrated the interactions between the injured kidney and distant organs. There's complex mechanisms, complex mechanisms of crosstalk have been identified between the injured kidneys and remote organs such as the lungs, liver, heart, gut, brain, and even the hematologic system. So the kidney, as it turns out, is the center of most, almost the overwhelming majority of organ crosstalk is generated right through the center of it, seems to be the kidney. And if you have cardiorenal crosstalk, you can have renal pulmonary crosstalk, you can have neurorenal, hepatorenal, you can also have immunorenal, where the kidneys directly affect the immune system, and at the bottom you can just have that it affects the, uh, the hematological system. And you can have any combination of these. So injury to one organ may result in uh, injury to other organs. 
it doesn't have to go through the kidney, but the kidney is overwhelmingly the center of where most of this occurs. So you can have any interaction between any other organ. And as you can see, the kidney is usually the heart of where it starts and where it propagates from. But you can have other uh, organ crosstalks. So organ crosstalk is most commonly initiated back to ischemic acute injury again, Joe. Renal ischemia reperfusion injury occurs in shock, sepsis, organ transplantation, vascular surgery, and we know it occurs in cardiac surgery and in ECMO and, and uh, any, any uh, situation where you could have an, a hypoxic event followed by reperfusion. So ischemic reperfusion injury in the kidney propagates a cascade of vascular inflammatory responses. This is really a take-home slide for anybody who likes to take notes. This is probably one of the most important slides going to be on this talk. Because this inflammatory response activates uh, endothelial cell activation. Most people don't think about it on the endothelial cell level. But if you think about what happens here and you realize what happens here is that the endothelial cells become into a pro-inflammatory and a pro-coagulant state of the endothelium. And it's due to its interaction with the white blood cells. So then you have leukocyte adhesion and entrapment. Now this is a hallmark of the inflammatory process, whereby adhesion proteins, something called selectins and integrins, we're going to talk about that, cause the white blood cells to actually adhere to the endothelium. Imagine that. Your immune system has now uh, begun to attack your own layer, your own endothelial layer. And then you result in compromised microvascular blood flow. It's a result of the endothelium becoming inflamed and narrowed by the white blood cells adherence, okay? So inflammation in the post-ischemic kidney triggers leukocyte adhesion molecules, something called integrins and selectins. Integrins are cell membrane receptors that facilitate this adhesion. They become activated. Selectins help coordinate and, and promote this adhesion of the white blood cells and the platelets in immune responses. So then you have toll-like receptors. These are cell membrane receptors that are on macrophages as part of the immune system which activate immune cell responses. Then you have transcription factors. These are proteins that are actually involved in transcribing the DNA into RNA. A lot of people don't think about the inflammatory response having anything to do with our DNA or RNA, but actually it's at the heart of it. Because at the cellular level, the very basis of inflammation is the deployment of complex gene expression programs that include hundreds of genes and are activated within minutes after a primary stimulus. In other words, there's an expression of multiple genes that upregulates the cytokines, chemokines, adhesion molecules, receptors, and inflammatory enzymes. Then you have your pro-inflammatory cytokines. This is a signaling molecules that, that is excreted from the immune cells and they further promote inflammation. So all of these things then travel from that organ into the bloodstream. They go to remote organs where genomic markers of injury are upregulated in that particular organ and phenotypic injury occurs. Phenotypic being now injury specific to that organ then, then begins to occur. So they've tried to treat this and what they discovered was when they did selective inhibition of cytokines and adhesion molecules such as the big one we talk about a lot, tumor necrosis factor A, and intracellular adhesion molecule ICAM-1, when they tried to inhibit these, it failed to demonstrate 
any global attenuation of both the local and remote organ injury during experimental models of ischemic AKI. So this unsuccessful effort to ameliorate the multi-organ failure with specific anti-inflammatory thera therapeutics highlights the complexity of this systemic response to kidney injury. So let's look at the um, complexity of organ crosstalk. Okay, so again, you have the kidney that's at the center of it, and you have different pathophysiologic responses to AKI in each of the remote organs. That's the unique thing, that each organ is actually being uh, affected by different uh, inflammatory responses and mediators. So there's multiple inflammatory pathways that are activated in each organ that re represent a unique response to the ischemic AKI. AKI induces remote organ injury in the heart, brain, lungs, liver, and gut involving multiple different inflammatory pathways. And this happens via pro-inflammatory mediators, innate and adaptive immunity. You know, you have your, your, your immunity that you're born with, but then as you live your life and you're exposed to things, now you have your adaptive immunity. This also plays a role in your immune response. Then you have cellular apoptosis. Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. And um, this is pre-programmed cell death that uh, your cells automatically have, which are a controlled system of cell death, uh, so that it doesn't, cells just don't die and release their toxins into the bloodstream. It's actually controlled where this doesn't happen. Well, when this spins out of control and you have uh, this cellular uh, death that's going on and there's inflammatory responses, now you have the toxins that are released into the system. Mm -hmm. You then also have a whole physiologic derangement. This is a system-wide derangement of your organs that are affected in this response. And then finally, you have the genomic changes, which are the DNA and RNA responses that I was talking about earlier. So we're going to discuss kidney crosstalk combinations. We're going to discuss the kidney-lung crosstalk. We're going to discuss kidney cardiac, kidney CNS or brain, kidney and liver, and we're going to talk about kidney intestine. So first of all, the kidney-lung crosstalk. So is a pathological crosstalk between the kidney and the lung, and how AKI leads to ALI, acute lung injury. So if you look there in the lower, like, uh, what is that, 7 o'clock on the, on the clock there, acute kidney injury starts, and it releases oxidative stress, cytokines, chemokines, activated leukocytes, and uremic uh, toxins, right? So then it goes up, and it, those things affect the, 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 the lung. And then you have alveolar, alveolar cell apoptosis. Fluid um, pressure is changed. Then you have a dysregulation of the sodium and water channels. At the alveolar level, if you have a dysregulation of the sodium and water channels, your lung takes on fluid. Mm -hmm. You begin to have pulmonary edema right away. So this relieves also this inflammatory markers by the kidney. It leads to an increased vascular permeability, again, leading to pulmonary edema. So now you have acute lung injury. The acute lung injury then has inflammatory responses of its own. Okay, but the first thing that happens is the lung doesn't function very well. You become hypoxic. You become hypercapnic. You begin to need higher peeps from the ventilator. Then you have barotrauma, possibly. This then, these underlying mechanisms, okay, because of the hypoxia, leads back to decreased renal perfusion, blood gas deterioration, and inflammatory uh, markers as well, which now are injuring the kidney back all over again. So these two are just bouncing back and forth uh, and aggravating each other, just these two alone. This is the most common. 
AKI induces pathophysiologic effects on the lung via the cellular and soluble mediators. The injured lung, in turn, exacerbates kidney dysfunction through metabolic and biochemical derangements. So the kidney-lung cross-truck, now when you talk about ALI, acute lung injury, most of the time it's defined as a ratio of the, of the PaO2 over the FiO2 ratio being less than 300. What does that mean? <clears throat> if you look at the denominator, I put 1.0 there. That's, let's say you're on 100% oxygen on the end ventilator, but your PaO2 is only 80. So the ratio is 80, so you're well below 300. So any combination of FiO2 giving you a result of PaO2 that is less than 300, okay, is defined as acute lung injury as long as it's combined with a chest X-ray that, uh, um, that shows bilateral infiltrates not caused by elevated cardiac filling pressures, okay? Just to give you an idea what most people refer to as ALI. So in, in multi-organ failure, acute kidney injury and acute lung injury occur more frequently together than any other combination of organ systems, and the mortality of nearly 80%. So the ALI, the acute lung injury, is due to volume overload, leukocyte trafficking, uremic toxins, and oxidative stress. The ischemic acute injury results in decreased alveolar fluid in the lungs, clearance via the downregulation of pulmonary epithelial <coughs> salt and water transporters, these include the epithelial sodium channels, the sodium potassium, ATPase, and the aquaporins, which are water channels. All of these happening in the lung, most of them in the alveolar level, all lead to an imbalance of keeping the lung dry. And all of these are dysregulated, you become pulmonary edema. This results in increased microvascular permeability, pulmonary edema, frequently encountered in the setting of ischemic AKI and multi-organ failure. So here. Acute, acute kidney injury leads to lung injury and inflammation, and in turn, the lung injury leads to pulmonary vascular permeability, erythrocyte sludging in the lung capillaries, and interstitial edema, focal alveolar hemorrhage. So think about this for a minute. You have erythrocyte sludging in the capillaries of the lung. You have focal alveolar hemorrhage. What is it you always find most of the time when you do a, uh, a bronch? You find blood clots. Your lung injury, most of the time, is going to have sludging in, of the erythrocytes and bleeding inside the alveolar. Inflammatory cell infiltration. So <clears throat> the resulting hypoxemia and hypercapnia from the acute lung injury are then made worse by mechanical ventilation. Paradoxically, the high PEEP creates an increased venous, uh, renal venous pressure, right, which now diminishes renal blood flow and function as well. So in addition to the inflammatory communications, you now have a hemodynamic uh, implication where you have to increase the PEEP. That increases your IVC blood pressure, which increases your, your, your renal vein blood pressure. Anytime you increase uh, your blood pressure in the renal vein, it's detrimental to the kidney. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. On the outflow. On the outflow, right, okay. coming out of the kidney. So you're, you're back stuffing, right? right. <clears throat> so now let's talk about kidney and cardiac crosstalk. Mechanisms cardiac injury during ischemic AKI, AKI include cardio, cardiac myocyte apoptosis. So here you have the myocytes of the, of the cardiac cells, unregulated cell death. You have neutrophil infiltration, which we see this in almost all in, inflammatory responses. They've been attributed to increased cardiac and systemic TNFA again. You have your interleukins. Interleukin-1, now, when we talked about this yesterday about, and we'll probably talk about today, 
that the hemoconcentrator removes a lot of these inflammatories. We talk about interleukin-1, 6, 8. Those are not isolated single entities. Interleukin-1 is actually a group of 11 cytokines that play a central role in the regulation of immune and inflammatory responses to infections and sterile insults. Then you have the ICAM-1, intercellular adhesion molecule. It's a ligand for integrin and causes the leukocytes to bind to the endothelial cells again and then transmigrate into the tissues. So in experimental models, you take animals and you, get, you isolate and, and clamp off their renal artery perfusion, give them ischemic AKI. Within a short period of time, it begins to demonstrate left ventricular dilatation. And increased lung water. Well, we were talking about cardiac, right, right. right. So, we're, so this is interesting because if you take, let's say, an animal and you just simply open them up, put them under anesthesia, and you give them ischemic AKI, you begin to see deteriorous effects in the cardiac function. Their heart was normal. You then see increased left ventricular end diastolic and systolic diameters, increased relax relaxation time, which is a, <clears throat> a fancy way of saying, you know, you're, you're dilating. <clears throat> Decreased ejection fraction. So now let's talk about kidney CNS crosstalk with the brain. Effects of ischemic AKI on the central nervous system are evident clinically when mental status changes develop. So here again you have somebody who <clears throat> just experienced AKI. And they begin to deteriorate, deteriorate their central nervous system. So encephalopathy caused by uremic toxins and inflammatory mediators include KC, which is a cytokine, GCSF, granulocyte colony stimulation factor, glial fibrillary acidic protein, and neutrophils, all these uh, things that most of us aren't too familiar with. You then have an increase of chemokines, resulting in increased vascular permeability in the brain. You have cell-mediated pro-inflammatory response with an activation of microglial cells. These are brain macrophages during ischemic AKI. This is what's going on in the brain. This may result in an alteration of the blood-brain barrier, right? So when you do renal replacement therapy on these patients, it fails to fully correct this CNS manifestation of renal failure. Why? Because just aiding the kidney in its function, if the kidney is failing, you're going to come in with renal replacement therapy and aid the uh, removal of, you know, your, your urea and so on. It's not as simple as that. Now, you have you all of these inflammatories. Before you say that, the renal replacement therapy, are you talking about intermittent dialysis or are you referring to uh, continuous therapy? Which, which uh, of the renal replacements are you referring to? Well, usually the, uh, the uh, intermittent in this case because what I they... Think, I think that is what you're referring to. What, right, what they were trying to do was say, well, we have a, a failing kidney. Well, why don't we just go in and, and help the kidney out and all this all oh, this will subside. Right. That, failed, that failed to correct the problem because you have all of these underlying problems that don't just have to do with the increased level of urea and so on that the kidney is now uh, failing to remove. In kidney liver crosstalk, you have ischemic AKI has been shown to incite oxidative stress, inflammation, apoptosis again, and tissue damage in the hepatocytes. Oxidative stress during ischemic AKI causes hepatic lipid peroxidation to increase while antioxidant agents decrease. Pro-inflammatory cytokine, tissue necrotic factor A, expression and hepatic cellular apoptosis is evident again during ischemic AKI. So crosstalk stimulates hepatic stellic cells, which exacerbates leukocyte trafficking and its accretion of chemokines. 
What about the kidney and the intestine? While the kidney is the engine of the organ crosstalk, it is actually the gut that you can call the driver of multi-organ failure because its ability to amplify the systemic inflammatory response in the setting of shock and gut hyperperfusion. These mechanisms include increased intestinal permeability, now interactions between the host and bacterial pathogens. Because of the gut, it's unique in that ability to do that, so it's particularly powerful uh, a negative in multi-organ failure promotion. So propagation of toxins to distant organs via the lymphatic system. So in conclusion, AKI is a frequent complication amongst hospitalized patients with grave implications in the setting of multi-organ failure. Ischemic AKI initiates this cascade of pro-inflammatory pathways and through the, of, through the release of soluble mediators and activation of host innate and adaptive immune systems facilitates organ crosstalk and subsequently remote organ injury. So as our understanding of post-ischemic kidney's role in mediating organ crosstalk continues to evolve, you know, it's hoped that the therapeutic treatments we can develop to, for this devastating complication will emerge. I think that's all I have. Wow, okay, very good. I'll give, you a, I'll give you an applause on that one. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, uh, Joe uh, Bulaki, I, may be, I, may, I hope I'm saying that right, Anil, um, he's a perfusionist in Mauritius. I don't know where that is. We'll figure it out. But he's asking... Um, a number of questions. He's like, uh, what is the value of O2 delivery we need? And I'm assuming he means on, means on bypass. Is it 272, 262, or 230 uh, index per, mil, per, per, per minute per millimeter uh, squared? Um, <clears throat> that was one question. Anybody on the panel can answer this. Um, but he also is asking... Um, what is the hemoglobin level we should keep to prevent AKI? And if we have to add blood to attain the hemoglobin level, are we doing good? Well, I mean, I mean, the simple answer to that is, is, is the hemoglobin level you need depends on how much O2 you're delivering. So that kind of goes back to the mm -hmm. first question. And two, giving, you're never doing good giving blood. Sometimes you have to, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, Joe. But I'm, I'm you know, <clears throat> You want to just start down there and kind of come back this way with any comments on those two questions? I mean, I think, um, I mean, anytime, you know, you're on bypass and you, you always want to try to maintain a, a decent, you know, H&H &H just to make sure you have, you know, good, uh, you know, oxygen com uh, carrying capacity for your hemoglobin. I mean, I know you're on bypass and depending on if you're cooling the patient, you know, depending on if you're more normothermic or, you know, you're cooling to like 28 degrees and maybe you might be able to adjust your PO2 and um, get away with running a low hemoglobin and then when you come off, see if you can get, give back a cell saver if you wanna, you know, be smart about blood conservation and not mm -hmm. having to transfuse, mm -hmm. depending on what, how critical that, that number is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with that too. I think um, blood is always a last resort. I think this goes back to the talks we were having last night um, or y'all were having last night about ultrafiltration. I think it's a real tool that we can try to use to help us
prevent giving blood. I mean, of course, sometimes you have to. Sometimes the patient's, you know, just hemodynamically unstable mm -hmm. because their hemoglobin's too low. Mm -hmm. But I think, really, that should be our very last resort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. John, you want to tackle yeah, Joe's questions? Yeah, it sounds like he might have uh, watched PerfWeb 23 because uh, when we did that one, he's, we referred to those exact three papers. There's three, <clears throat> three papers on delivery of oxygen that mm -hmm. give those exact... Mm -hmm. Uh, parameters or levels that they were looking at 230, 272, mm -hmm. and 262. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to figure out what is the critical level that we need to stay above. Right. We don't know that, but the general accepted right now seems to be the 272, which is a paper by Renuzzi out of Italy that's mm -hmm. done the most work on this. But so I would suggest that if you're monitoring DO2, try to keep it 272 and above. As far as the hemoglobin goes, when you only look at hemoglobin, you're not seeing the whole picture because you need to look at delivery of oxygen. Right. You, you don't, the, 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 minimum DO, the minimum hemoglobin level depends on how much you're flowing. Look at the mm -hmm. delivery of oxygen formula. Hemoglobin is only one of four parameters that are going to affect it up or down. Right. If you have a lower hemoglobin, you're going to have to flow more. Mm -hmm. If you have a higher hemoglobin, your delivery of oxygen is going to be greater of what you're carrying. Mm -hmm. You can flow less. So I don't know that there's a golden rule when it comes to mm -hmm. delivery of oxygen and hemoglobin. You need to be delivering enough oxygen. If you're not doing that, you need to up your four parameters, mm -hmm. blood flow, hemoglobin, PO2, and saturation. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's, a very, that's a very good point. And I think that, you know, we can, we can kind of, take that down another rabbit hole and say that, you know, if you could flow enough, essentially, you could have a hemoglobin of five. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, though, is, you know, what other, you know, since we know hemoglobin is our strongest buffer um, in the blood, it's a great buffer. Um, without it, you know, we're going to be becoming more acidemic just from the anemia, mm -hmm. not necessarily from, you know, hypoperfusion, but that that uh, uh, non-viscous state more and more, how, how does that affect things? Are we going to have, uh, you know, can you flow enough with a hemoglobin of five to, to get away with it? Well, nothing lives in a bubble, right? I mean, so yeah. you, you have to look at uh, if you're going to an extreme on something, you're probably negatively affecting something else. Agreed. Which you, begin yes. to, which you begin to do, you know. You have to sit there and think about that, like what's <clears throat> yeah. the consequence of this? I mean, you couldn't have a hemoglobin of one and be flowing 20 liters a minute, theoretically. You know, maybe your delivery of oxygen mm -hmm. says it's okay, but uh, you have to look at um, nothing and just in a bubble by itself. So mm -hmm. you have to look at, but we don't, you know, this is a real good area, the delivery of oxygen, especially in regard to how it affects the kidney, mm -hmm. is a whole area that, We've scratched the surface on, and some people have done a lot of work, so we do know a lot, but I think we really need to have that as a focus, mm -hmm. and if we're, we're looking at that in the future as perfusionists. Well, I want to I ask you a question, if I can, regarding the um, uh, patient with the cardiorenal syndrome that you uh, were talking about and how <coughs> correcting the AKI did not improve anything with the heart. And of course, you know, that is a complex relationship, which I think you very eloquently described in your slides uh, and with your work that you did on that. But they saw no improvement with RRT. And I sort of stopped you right there to 
get from you? Are we talking renal replacement therapy is intermittent dialysis, which is only diffusive clearance? Or are we talking about CVVH, where you're removing, you know, especially higher doses, inflammatory mediators, and so forth? Because there is a major, a big difference mm. between IHD and continuous therapies and diffusive therapy versus convective therapy. So I'm kind of cons I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think and whether if they'd have done that type, it would have made a difference that you saw improvement. I mean, this is really uh, sort of an overview. That's a good question. I really wouldn't say I know the answer to that, but I, I think you're talking about when this all initially was being looked at some years back, um, and I don't know the specifics of what they did on that. Yeah, it'd be a good question to look into. I, I don't know the answer to mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, I, somebody else might out there might know something more about that. But now that we have so many elaborate ways of doing RRT, you may be able to hone in on some benefit of, of the crosstalk aspect of it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, man, I had a quick question for you before. I'm going to go ahead and get my, my talk out of the way. But... Um, when you do your hyperkalemia cases, mm -hmm. how many liters of ultrafiltrate do you go through to get your potassium cleared, plus or minus? I mean, we, we probably go anywhere from, it could be 8 to 12 liters. Uh, have 8 you, to 12 liters. 8 to 12? 8 to 12. Or you think, you, you mean, I've done 20. I mean, 8 to 12 would only be two of those replacement bags. Okay. which are five liters each. Well, we've gone through five bags. In five, five bags, so yeah. that'd be 25 that'd be liters. 20. So it'd be, on, on the highest case, I've done about 25 right. bags. I mean, About 25, okay, yeah. five bags, so, so 25. So, so somewhere probably between, more within 12 to 15. And depending on how much potassium exactly. you gave and whether they're making urine and, a lot of, and they're losing a lot of potassium, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, okay, so uh, just, a, just another real quick question before I get started. On those patients that you've done with the um, very high volume CVVH to mm -hmm. remove the potassium like that. And we're talking about continuous ultrafiltration where you're replacing it with a solution. We're not talking about dehydrating the patient. This is kind of a zero balance, Z-buff, I guess we would call it, right? Mm -hmm. um, how many have those patients done? They've done well. They've done well. Um, Has any of them had any 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 issues, especially no. associated with, you know, failed kidneys in the ICU? No, the I mean, kidneys returned fine. Patients did well. Hearts, you know, came back. I mean, depending on how high you get the potassium, sometimes sometime it takes a little time to let the heart reperfuse. You know, well, get, it never it never gets, gets ischemic. Exactly, it never gets ischemic. Yeah, yeah. you just have it, to get the potassium. Exactly, out. get the potassium out. Basically, that's the main thing. And sometimes, depending on how. Every patient is different, you know, depending on what you need to get the potassium at. But, I mean, you know, we've gotten the potassium, you know, up pretty high. I mean, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, it's just a matter of giving time to get it off and, and timing about when you start actually pulling off mm -hmm. because then, you know, that takes time to pull off too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you done any of the hyperkalemia cases? I haven't. Actually, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who aren't familiar with that, what, what, how high are you getting the potassium? Um, they can be as high as like greater than nine. I mean, we sent it to the lab. No, they. I mean, yeah. they get as high as eighteen. Eighteen, yeah. <laughs> eighteen. <laughs> yeah. But, sometimes, well, if well, when we come it off, it'll be. Yeah. It, it. We've we've came off before at like six, mm -hmm. six, six and a half, seven. But then, um, you know, given you know, uh, medications and you know, Lasix and whatnot, you know, the patient usually gets it off. But you're right. But it'll be. I mean. The lab will send, I mean, our ISTAT would only read, 
Greater than um, greater than nine. Yeah, greater than nine. Right, but we send it. To yeah, the we send it to the lab. lab. But but you just said something, and I'm glad you said <laughs> yeah. it finally because I'm going to get John looped back into this. Right. Where then I'm eventually going to get to my talk. Right. But um, uh, he said he came off the bypass with a potassium of six and sometimes seven, and you know because it's on its way down, he has no problem with it at all. Tell him your story about uh, well, what you were told. Yeah, I mean, I um, in the last. I don't know how many years I've, I've seen this uh, alongside the, the trend that the hemoconcentrator is somehow causing kidney damage. I've also heard this uh, almost like a, a, a real paranoia about coming off pump with potassiums, even as high as 5.0 or 5.5. Wow. Weight refused to come off. Mm -hmm. You have to get it down. I've seen this a lot in my travels. I'm not sure where it came from um, or if it's valid and maybe I'm wrong, but I know that for many, many years, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000, people were using a lot of straight plegisol. In fact, it's still out there. So you had to give a lot of volume and you had to give a lot of potassium. Um, and it was all crystalloid. And it's it all wasn't. So, um, we didn't have blood. The hemoconcentrator in and of itself doesn't, by itself, just doesn't lower potassium. So we always came off with potassiums that were, you know, five, five and a half, six, six and a half, even seven. And um, nobody ever mentioned anything was ill effects about it. I never really saw any ill effects about it. But now, um, a lot of places I go, I see people treating potassiums that are 5.0, 5.5, forget about it, won't come off pump, they wait. Really? Um, and I'm just wondering if that should be a topic we can talk about. I think so, um, because I think what so. I was I've also had experience. And I, I really, that. maybe, I, maybe I'm a dinosaur. I, I didn't. You are. I'm, yeah, you know, I am that, but. Uh, I try to stay alive, though. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, um, I would love to know uh, how these coming off bypass with high potassium, and I've asked cardiac surgeons directly, do you think coming off bypass with high potassium is benign? And they've always told me, yes, it's benign. Mm -hmm. I've, everyone I've ever asked mm -hmm. has said that. Um, but there's a bunch out there that I didn't ask that I don't need to ask because they're yelling and screaming in the OR. Mm. We're not coming off pump to get the potassium down to five, even if it's 5.3 or 5.5. Forget about 6.0 or 6.5. Uh, we can talk that a whole other day, I think. We it's will, a very but good yesterday topic you because said it was a diuretic. Uh, the, right. the, and and so right. it sounds to me like it'd be a good idea to leave it up there and let the kidney Actually, diurese mm -hmm. it out itself. Your, um, your body is going to... When you return the pulsatile flow, even while you're still on pump, and you begin to fill the heart up a little bit, mm -hmm. when the pulsatile flow returns, with the non-pulsatile flow, your sodium potassium pumps are not working very well. Mm -hmm. The minute the pulsatile flow begins to return, sodium potassium pump, every cell in your body, begins to push that potassium back inside the cell. And within one to two minutes of your pulsatile flow returning, because I've done this many times. Sample the patient's blood. You'll find a real serious drop in your potassium. Mm -hmm. Your body's just not going to let it stay up there. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's just not. But even so, what is the negative effect? It's a negative inotrope, negative chronotrope, really, right? When you're coming off bypass, if that's a negative chronotrope, everything we're doing is a positive inotrope or a positive chronotrope. We might be given a gram of calcium, or maybe the anesthesiologist is giving a gram of calcium. They're on epi. They're on dopamine. They're on. I mean, all Not of my these. Cases. All of these. All of these. All these positive inotropes mm -hmm. are just way overcompensating for a little bit of an elevated potassium. Mm -hmm. That's a negative chronotrope. So I've never seen a negative effect from it. Never mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And then you're doing this procedure now, mm -hmm. and you probably, surgeon's probably ready to come off, and you start coming off with higher and higher potassiums. How many times have you, have you done this procedure with, that, that, with the high potassium? Uh, every case, uh, most, most, every case I've done, the, the, we've always come off with at least the potassium. Uh, I've had one case where I, the potassium actually was below six. Um, but we just started. The rest are all above early. six. Uh, right above six, but um, above six, but below seven. Mm -hmm. Above six, but below seven. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we've had normal cases. I mean, even non-hyperkalemia cases where sometimes the potassium gets up too high, mm -hmm. but it's a fast case, and then before you know it, you know you're rewarming, right. and then you get your next gas back, you know, and then the potassium six point five, you know, you Z buff. You z-buff a liter or a liter and a half or even two liters, depending on how fast your hemoconcentrate is running. And then you might get it down 6.2, 6.1, mm -hmm. but you're still going to come off at that. And um, I think the patients have done pretty well for the yeah. most part. You can give diuretics and, you know, get the potassium If off. you need to. If you need or to. it'll just take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And getting back to that pulsatile flow, you know, the new artificial hearts, all of the new artificial heart technology, and Dr. Frazier, I think, over at CHI, he's very... Texas Heart Institute, CHI St. Luke's. Um, he's uh, very passionate about this, but they're all, you know, continuous flow pumps. And mm -hmm. so that sodium potassium pump mechanism that you're talking about for the intracellular, extracellular shifting of, uh, of, of ions and fluids um, is, I think, adaptive at mm -hmm. some point. It's just that when we're doing it, it mm -hmm. is such a compressed period of mm -hmm. time because there are a lot of patients going walking around without a pulse and they're walking yeah, around and right. doing just fine. So it adaptive, must yeah. be an adaptive, adaptive process, I think. You know, because his he elbows, heart rate too. Right. His his argument, of course, is the capillaries have mm -hmm. continuous flow. There's no pulse in the capillary, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's hard to argue with you know Dr. Bud Frazier, mm -hmm. you know. So it does work, it, it, it's just, is it adaptive? I think that's really my question is, you know, because we know that's the tr case, but for the pump, it's not adaptive because there's no time to adapt. It is just an immediate sort of issue. So I, I ran this by our, our cardiac intensive care nurses. I said, do you guys treat high potassiums? You know, she's like, yeah, yeah, our potassium gets, you know, to 5.5, 5.9, we, we get concerned. You know, and uh, she's, you know, we're concerned about high potassiums and uh, that's different. Than, than bypass, totally different, because on bypass, all the drips are off. Pulsatile flow's off. I mean, you have non-pulsatile flow, you have high potassium possibly because of cardioplegia, but all the drips are off. So your high potassium creeps up. Now we turn all the drips back on, which are positive ionotropes, positive chronotropes. Um, the pulsatile flow returns, and the body sees a high potassium, it begins to correct. If you're in the ICU 24, 48 hours, all of your inotropes are going. Mm -hmm. You have a pulsatile flow, but your potassium's starting to get away from Completely you. Completely different. So a nurse right. is not going to sit there and let that trend continue to where it gets to 6 and 6.5 and whatever. And now she has a hard time keeping the, the heart rate up and the blood pressure up. Right. See, we have already gone to the point where we're not treating that at all. And we can easily reverse it with what I just said, she's already treating that, or he or she, already doing it, and the, and the potassium's getting away from them. We can make you, it better just by simply getting the patient off pump. Well, it did, correct. Have you ever drawn a sample? Next time you have a high potassium, mm -hmm. literally wait two minutes if you can and get the anesthesiologist to give you a blood sample and check the potassium. Two minutes of pulsatile flow. I bet you see a huge drop in your potassium. I bet the 6.5 is well below 6, 5.5, 5.6, somewhere in there. I've done it many times, I know. You know, some of our um, pumps, 
we, we um, and for some of the cases we do um, in the woodlands, we use, we, there's a pulsatile flow option on the pump. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious how effective that is. None. I'll answer the question for you, zero. <laughs> okay. There's no pulse pressure. Right. It's a, it's, it's more of a sine more wave, and it's such a slow, you know. More of an intermittent pause? Pretty, yeah, pretty much. Basically. I mean, it's, you know, you, you have to have a pulse pressure right. of at least, I believe it's 30, in order to really have a benefit mm. from pulsatile from a from a pulse wave, mm -hmm. um, not to mention you know the upstroke of that thing is you know your 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 time matters too. That's so mm -hmm. with normal heart you have big upstroke, right. drop down, big right. upstroke, drop down. You know your your not much your, of a pressure gradient. No, no, yeah. and it's very slow right. up to upstroke right. and then very slow downstroke. It's I I would say it's it it is only effective at uh, damaging more red blood cells. I would, I, I don't like doing it, mm -hmm. I think it's pointless. Okay, am I ready to do my talk? Okay. Say again? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> well, we gotta answer people's questions, you know, when they have them. I mean, you know, I gotta do my job. Okay, where are we at here? Okay, fluid overload is deadly. Can I have a clicker? Sure. All right. So, We should avoid the term fluid overload. Here's a diagram of your, you know, basic normal physiology of a 70 kilo man uh, with a body weight of, uh, uh, and you take that multiply it by 0 0.06 and you get your total body water content. Now this is a normal sized person, not obese, not, you know, the, a normal Texas size person. This is more of a, mm -hmm. I guess this Southern California person, okay. Um, of that 42 liters, 28 liters of that is intracellular. So the, the, the majority of all of the fluid that we, the water that we are made of lives in the intracellular space. You have some in the cell membranes, and then there's approximately 14 liters in the extracellular fluid. Of the extracellular fluid that we have, uh, 10 and a half liters of that in this patient is in the interstitial space. And then you have red blood cells, but the plasma and plasma water, everything in the plasma, the liquid portion of our blood is 3.5 liters. So if you add the red blood cells into that, assuming a hematocrit of, uh, let's say 45, then, let's see, I'll get it to work eventually. I think we're dying here. Next slide, please. Then our circulating blood volume of that patient is going, oh, here you go, is gonna be about 5.2 liters. All right, next slide, please. So how does the water stay where it belongs? Well, it's a balance between os osmotic and oncotic forces. Continuous exchange occurs between the intravascular space and the interstitial spaces. And the intracellular compartments and extracellular compartments. Focusing on the intravascular space, however, 
um, the total total proteins in albumin, and albumin is 70% of your, basically your 60, well, 60 plus percent, almost 70% of your total protein um, content in your blood. That's why it's used as a surrogate for knowing whether your patient is hypo or hyperoncotic. Um, uh, uh, is the driver, but um, cellular exchange is largely ionic in the intracellular, extracellular movement of water and uh, uh, osmotic in that in that case. But in the in the uh, in the extravascular space between the blood vessels and the the uh, the uh, 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 interstitium, it's predominantly oncotic. Okay, next slide, please. So, Joe, can I stop you right there? Yes. Because yeah. you, you, you touched on Here, something. Just, okay, you it. touched on something that uh, is dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. You just, correct me if I'm wrong, you said the albumin, percentage of albumin, protein percentage is about 60 or 70% yes. of the total protein is albumin. So I just want to point out something. When people prime with albumin and they think that they've you know, cured the problem of diluting out our, uh, our protein levels and we basically have become even, you still have 30% of the proteins that you're diluting. Mm -hmm. You're not adding any of those. You're not adding the globulins and all the other ones. Correct. So we're doing a lot by doing that. I'm yes. a big advocate of it. But you still have, and this is a good, good example of it, many other things that are even on pump with albumin, mannitol, uh, plasmalite with, you know, the isoconic uh, uh, electrolytes, we still have things that are trending towards third space. I totally agree. And that's one of them. 30% totally of the agree. proteins, other than albumin, are still being yes, even and I think down most... to probably 30, 40% lower of what they should be. That's a very good point. And I think a lot of people don't even realize mm -hmm. how, you know, how, what, the, what the percentage of Albumin is right. for your for your for your total protein and how and and I think we grossly underappreciate it. Look, I'll say this as a sort of a, 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 a precursor to the rest of this discussion. You can take a normal healthy individual, and that you know is otherwise healthy, fifty year old, routine, two three vessel cabbage, whatever, isolated mitral valve or aortic valve or whatever it is and or a healthy athletic younger woman who needs something similar and do just about anything to them and they're going to be fine there's an, there's those outliers and anomalies and things that happen that curveball you go what the heck happened here but basically everything we're discussing really comes down to the sicker of our patients of which if you, of course, I've been in cardiac, I've been involved in perfusion since 1977. So I'm probably the old man of the, of the sea here. You know, I need my parrot on my shoulder. But, um, but uh, uh, back then, you know, we started off with the patients who were just horrible. But it, it sort of evolved from like the late 70s, mid to late 70s into the early 80s to where, I mean, I never did anybody that was over 50 years old or 55 years old. It was cabbage, 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 cabbage. We did valves and stuff like that. But, um, but predominantly, our patients were much, much younger and much, much healthier than they are today. Our cases have become much higher acuity. 
They have many more multi-organ system dysfunctions going on, way more diabetes, way more heart failure, way more anemia, all of the you know, kidney, kidney disease, pulmonary disease, whatever you want, to, yeah, all of this. And their nutrition is worse. Their albumin levels start off way lower. Um, it's a totally different patient. And so these talks, my talk here now is not about me having to do you because you, I could just about do anything. You know, I could probably flow a liter and a half and you'd probably do okay. <laughs> but, you know, if you had to do me, you're going to be kind of, I, I want you to, to flow a little more than that and be a little more stressed. I'd be, I'd be stressed only because I love you. But if I didn't know you, your case would be a chip shot. I'm going to be a bigger challenge. In 1985, when I got into this, age 72 and over was contraindication for open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the first that time was we did an I remember the first time that we was... did an octogenarian. It was written mm -hmm. up. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they had the they mm -hmm. had they had the, the 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 New York Times, you know, calling wanting to know about it. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, very early on we listed all the indications for cardiac surgery and the contraindications, and mm -hmm. one of them was age seventy two or older contraindication for cardiac surgery. Mm -hmm. Think that's changed yeah. a bit? <laughs> yeah, just slightly. Okay, so back to my slides. Back, okay. All right, so let's see, here we go. Let's see if it's gonna work. Is it working, fellas? Just go to the next slide for me, please. Uh, we're at the very beginning. There we go. So here's an interesting article. How does the water stay where it belongs? Okay, this article here, um, and I believe it was out of England. It was uh, published in Perfusion, a good article. But he, uh, in this article, the authors discussed hyperosmolar primes, putting uh, mannitol in the prime, prime you know, uh, and uh, the concern was that if you create a, an immediate hyperosmolar state uh, when you go on pump, that you can cause potentially osmotic demyelination syndrome. And of course we know that's bad. Um, but you know, how, you know, and I'll say however, hyperosmolar states are created every day for closed head injuries, for example, by giving the patients massive amounts of mannitol, mm -hmm. hypertonic saline, you drive the sodium up to 150, 100, even higher sometimes. Um, and both hypertonic saline and mannitol are used. So uh, very frequently, this reduces the intracellular water. Mm -hmm. So on a closed head injury, for mm -hmm. example, you wanna make the brain, the intracranial pressure as low mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. So you give this in order to shrink the brain, basically all of the cells of the brain. Mm -hmm. And typically demyelination syndrome occurs when you have a, a sodium below, a, I believe it's 120, and you rapidly correct the sodium to get it back up to 138 or 140. Um, I, I have to say, I think the paper was a, a provocative paper and thought out well, but I, I don't necessarily think it is germane to what to adding mannitol to the uh, to the pump prime. I don't think unless you just had 100 percent. Uh, mannitol prime with nothing else in it, and maybe threw some hypertonic saline in with it, um, that you're 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 at a risk of having that problem. I think having a somewhat 
hyperonchotic, hyperosmotic prime makes sense mm -hmm. because if I have to choose between shifting uh, uh, volume from the interstitial space into the blood vessels and maybe even intracellular to extracellular transiently, I would rather that than shifting it the other direction. Mm -hmm. I think there's less uh, risk of longer term uh, sequelae associated with that. Next, oh, here we go, I got it. Um, in regards to third spacing from a reduction in oncotic pressure, your plasma refill rate, PRR, is reduced and fluid accumulates in the interstitial space. That's what that is. So uh, there's constantly a shift of volume of water and even plasma or albumin across your cell membranes and your, your vascular through the capillary system. And it goes out, but there's a pull to bring it all back in, and that's called your plasma refill rate. Albumin, though much maligned for seemingly no good reason, is very, very influential in this. And capillary leak syndrome, because I hear a lot of times, oh, we don't want to give albumin. Look, the patient is very third-spaced. Uh, they have capillary leak syndrome. Well, capillary leak syndrome is not equal to decreased plasma refill rate secondary to hypoalbuminemia. Capillary leak syndrome is its own a process by which, and it's an inflammatory process that causes this to happen, and it's devastating when it does. And in those cases with capillary leak, giving albumin would be the last thing you would want to do because you give it and it just makes the matter worse because it leaks out. Um, but those patients are, are in devastating shape, and it really requires a uh, plasma adsorption or plasma purification technique to relieve the inflammatory, the severe inflammatory response syndrome. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. Go ahead, next slide, right there. So what does <coughs> fluid overload look like? Does it look like this? Anybody? Does that look like fluid overload? Mm -hmm. It does? Okay, next slide. Mm -hmm. No, wrong. Next slide. Does that look like fluid overload? If you look at that, you can see that the heart muscle, it looks like it's stuffed, but it's swollen. It's almost, you know, again, we've seen this before with very, very sick hearts. That patient has a right atrial line, an aortic cannula, and a right superior pulmonary vein line. So you, wide into the, uh, to the venous line. So you definitely have a, look at the right atrium. The right atrium is flaccid. But yet, look at the right ventricle. It looks stuffed, but it's not stuffed. Does that, is, do you think that looks like, like fluid overload? Next slide. Bonk, no, it's not. What that is, that is, both of those examples are an example of third spacing. Because the harsh reality of it is, you can have a patient that looked like that lady or a heart that looks like this, and your lines, your access lines or venous return lines are chattering because you are intravascularly hypovolemic. So if you remember the title of my slide, you know, what is fluid overload? And my next slide was we should not use the term fluid overload because it is not it is not specific enough to what you are trying to describe. Mm -hmm. 
is the patient hypervolemic or is the patient hypovolemic intravascularly and is the patient third spaced hypervolemic in the interstitial spaces or intracellular spaces or are they not so that's really you have to increase specificity and be more and be more accurate in our description next slide please the fact of the matter is that both of those patients can be grossly hypovolemic. Next. The venous capacitance system, our venous capacitance system is a giant reservoir. Although it acts much more significantly than just a reservoir, has a lot of function to it. But 60 plus percent of all of our blood volume is in our venous capacitance system. Next. So this is a very interesting slide, and it's a concept that I want to sort of uh, get everyone to understand, because where I go from here, a lot of this foundation is going to be very important. So you have a mean systemic pressure. Now, that's not to be confused with a CVP. It's not to be confused with an arterial pressure or a mean arterial pressure, it is the mean systemic pressure. And how do you measure mean systemic pressure? Well, it is measured by stopping all circulation. If you stop all circulation, simply stop the heart, and this has been experimented on in the ICU with patients who were in the process of uh, dying, where you have lines in various places within the vascular system and the patient dies and all circulation stops and then you get a pressure. All of the pressures throughout all of the blood vessels will eventually equalize and become <coughs> a pressure. And that pressure is between 10 and 12 millimeters of mercury. That if your patient, assuming your patient, is euvolemic at the time. If it's a trauma patient and they've died from massive bleeding, then it doesn't, the, 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 the test doesn't work. They have to be a normovolemic individual. So our mean systemic pressure is on, for us, is about 10 to 12. That's what it is. So if you look at this diagram on the left, this is a baseline. And you'll see that you have unstressed and stressed, and again, this is the venous system. Above it, you see the LV, you see the arteries, you see the vascular waterfall, which is your capillary bed. So let's now look at the venules to the veins and all the way back to the heart, your venous capacitance system, which is the, 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 the round cylinders. What does unstressed and stressed mean? Well, if you took a waterbed, and I tried to do the, I was gonna do a demonstration with a balloon, but it wasn't working out because I didn't get the right balloons, but that's a different story. Mm -hmm. If you take a waterbed that's completely empty and you've set it up and you were to measure the pressure, it's pretty much zero. There's no pressure in it. There's no, no, nothing in it, right? No but you start pouring water in it, <clears throat> but it hasn't yet begun to expand that pressure is still zero. And you keep filling it, and eventually it starts to take some sense of shape. So now you probably got some pressure, some pressure. 
but you keep filling it and keep filling it until it has reached a point where it is the shape it's going to be. It has reached a point of where it now has tension on it. That is the point by which you go from unstressed to stressed because if you fill it more from there, then you start to actually stretch the material. So that would be your stressed volume. Well, think of your venous system, excluding your right atrium, as the exact same way. That system has to be full enough to have a stress, you have to have a pressure in order for there to be venous return. The higher your mean systemic filling pressure is to a point, because it has a point, just like the Starling curve has a point, you have a point, but the higher that is, the higher your venous return is, and therefore higher your cardiac output is, up again to a certain point. You can obviously go then into heart failure, in which case the right atrium, the pressure starts to go up. So your gradient between your mean systemic filling pressure and your right atrium is what the driver is to get venous blood through the venous system into your right atrium to fill it, fill it, fill it, beat, empty, fill it, fill it, fill it, fill it, beat, empty. That's the gradient that you need. So if you were to deplete your intravascular fluid volume to a hypovolemic state, you will have inadequate venous return vis-a-vis -vis our patient is empty and we see it on bypass all of the time. But that can also happen through vasodilatory processes. Mm -hmm. So if you have a patient, which you would look at on the right, that has a venous capacitance system that now has been dilated, you will see that because of that dilatation, it's going to take more volume to fill the unstressed portion because you've made a bigger waterbed. It's not a twin size, you've graduated to the queen and you're going to need more volume. But what really, the thing that's most important is that if you don't change your volume, then what happens is the stressed volume, pressure, the, 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 the volume within your stressed system decreases, lowers your venous return, lowers your cardiac output. Next slide, please. So in this particular example, you see the right atrial pressure, which is on your uh, x-axis, and your venous return on your y-axis. So as you take in the blue lines, move your mean systemic filling pressure to the right, which also does increase your CVP, though they are, not, they are independent of each other. It's important to understand that. You see that your venous return goes up. So the, on the left, the furthest to the left is hypovolemic, then you have euvolemic, then you have hypervolemic. And this can be demonstrated all of the time with a fluid challenge. Our patient looks kind of wimpy with their uh, blood pressure, so give them a challenge of 500 and let's see what happens. You throw 500 cc's in, you see an immediate improvement, 
And although that may only be transient, we could talk about the reason for the transient nature of it is because the fluid all now went out into the interstitium or because some other reason we don't know. Um, but nevertheless, we see it, we fill the heart, we come off bypass, what do we do? We start filling it. We're not just filling the heart, we're filling everything, but mm -hmm. you know, volume challenges can tell you whether or not you're euvolemic, hypo or hypervolemic. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. Here we see the uh, mean systemic filling pressure on the y-axis, blood volume on the x-axis, and the center green dot is our control. And what I'm showing here is, as you give uh, the blue triangles, as you give an alpha agent, you see that you are reducing now the size of the tank. You're going from a queen back to a, a uh, twin, and so your tank size has decreased given the same volume. What happens? Your mean systemic filling pressure goes up and uh, over all spectrums of blood volume. So you can be hypovolemic, but still have a good, a better blood pressure because what you're doing is making the tank smaller. You can increase your venous return given a particular blood volume simply by decreasing the size of the <laughs> reservoir. Um, and then the same would be the case, you know, for the opposite spectrum with the uh, with the uh, 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 adrenergic blockers or vasodilators, which you see with the red dots. So below the control, but over a spectrum, they lower the blood pressure by lowering your mean systolic, uh, mean systemic filling pressure. Let me see here. I got check your email for. Oh, okay, good with the right parameters turned on. <laughs> I just got a message that with the with the right parameters, the Siemens 500 blood, blood gas analyzer can do those calculations for the uh, talk on DO2. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Kevin. Uh, okay, let's see if this is working yet. Next slide. Next slide, please. Edema and fluid overload can be mutually exclusive. Although hypervolemia is always associated with some edema, edema is not always associated with hypervolemia. Next slide, please. Data supporting hypervolemia as a prognosticator of bad outcomes. CPB is highly dilutional. Inconsistent treatment of albumin, I think, is the norm today, surprisingly. Cardioplegia, uh, dilution, uh, depending on how much you give. And now with Del Nido, we give a lot of crystalloid Dow Cardi, more crystalloid than I think we did when we gave, uh, when we used uh, Plegisol, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, arguments over on, uh, over pump, uh, ultrafiltration on pump continue to seem to pervade. Next, next slide, please. Hypervolemia has been shown conclusively, and I want to say that one more time, hypervolemia has been shown conclusively, not conjecturally, to be associated with a host of unfavorable outcomes to include respiratory complications, neurocognitive problems, AKI and ARF. Again, AKI and ARF. This is hypervolemia, all right? Uh, increased vent times, length of stay, increased cost, and increased 30-day 
mortality. And I put my references for that right there. Next slide, please. Here's a very interesting slide talking about fluid balance, assessment of fluid balance status and fluid responsiveness in the middle. So you have your optimum or euvolemic patient right in the center on the scale. Volume depletion, so hypoperfusion results in hypotension, shock, organ hypoperfusion, and AKI from ischemic disease. And, in a, in, and then if you over-aggressively fluid resuscitate, you have impaired oxygenation, edema, hypertension, organ congestion, and although the slide doesn't say it, all of those things we know leads to AKI, mm -hmm. okay? So optimum fluid balance, is very important. I'm not advocating for uh, hypovolemia. I'm not advocating for hypervolemia. I'm, I'm really advocating, and I think, use of the hemoconcentrator to become normovolemic is what I'm trying to achieve. I think all of us are, uh, when we, those of us that use it. Next slide, please. Okay, so here's this is a very interesting side. The organs, cerebral edema. Uh, this is the consequences of fluid overload. Impaired cognition, delirium for the myocardium, conduction disturbances, impaired contract. I wonder how much AF, uh, AFib we, uh, we are contributing to with, uh, due to myocardial edema uh, postoperatively. Impaired contractility, diastolic dysfunction, uh, the lungs, pulmonary edema. It results in impaired gas exchange. Uh, reduction, reduced compliance, you got stiff lungs, increased work breathing, you can't get the patient extubated, uh, renal interstitial edema, reduced uh, renal blood flow, increased interstitial pressure, reduced GFR, uremia, salt and water retention. That's the one with most problems, hypervolemia. Look at that list compared to the other. It hurts the kidneys more than anything else. Hepatic congestion, impaired synthetic function, uh, and uh, uh, cholestasis, gut edema, malabsorption, you get an ileus, tissue edema, poor wound healing, wound infection, pressure ulcerations. So these are all of the, the uh, consequences of fluid overload in the various organ systems. Next slide, please. So this is very important. I really need everybody to read this, so I'm gonna read it to you as well. Most people think there are a lot of bad people running around the world. There aren't a lot of bad people. There are a lot of bad ideas. And bad ideas are worse than bad people because bad ideas are contagious. Bad ideas get good people to do horrible things. Please, I'm going to ask all of you. You're all good people. It's a bad idea to not use ultrafiltration on pump. I'm just going to say it. So don't be that person. Okay? Um, let's try to follow this logic. Next slide, please. The patient, actual patient, I say patient one's the only patient, okay? 72-year-old, <laughs> you like that? <laughs> it's a big study. Yeah, it's a big study. 72-year-old female, poor nutrition and sedentary lifestyle. 5'4", 78 kilos, EF is 40%, patient has 3 plus MR from a dilated LV, 4 vessel disease, she's in for a cabbage plus mitral valve repair or replace. Next slide. Here's her, uh, her chemistries and uh, albumin 138, 4.6K, 101, BUN creatinine, look good. I mean, she's actually, you know, this looks like she has reasonably decent renal function, normal creatinine certainly. 
Um, total protein is 4.6, albumin 2.8, so she is a little hype, uh, a little uh, uh, hypoproteinemic and hypoalbuminemic. Um, and by the way, does everybody know, you may know this, I don't know if you know this, but uh, a, 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 an albumin level of two or less is an independent predictor of mortality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An independent indicator of mortality is an albumin level of two or below. And I've seen albumin levels of 1.2. Mm -hmm. And they look like that lady mm -hmm. with the water balloons on her eyes. Okay, hemoglobin 32, uh, crit 32, uh, HNA is 32 and 10.3. Next slide, please. Total circulating volume is 46 liters in this lady based on the calculation. Circulating should be 5.4 liters, but you know, she's got MR, she's got ischemic heart disease. I gave her an extra liter, 6.4 liters. Extracellularly in the tissues, I bumped her up from 16 liters to 20 liters to accommodate for most patients I see with ischemic heart disease that have an ischemic three plus MR for any length of time tend to have pitting edema. So I'm just, you know, taking that as a liberty and an assumption, if you will. Next slide, please. Heart rate's 100. This is, this is right on anesthesia, uh, just post-anesthesia induction. BP 138 over 90. PA is 56 over 32. Not unexpected. CVP is 18. Not unexpected. So, I mean, these are pretty, you know, this is what we see frequently. These are not unusual, really weird, unusual, bizarre numbers. But, you know, this patient is in some element of failure. Doesn't mean she's hypervolemic just means she's in failure. Because you can have this presentation, interestingly enough, and you can be, you can have a very low mean systemic filling pressure at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's why using an echo to look to see if the patient is euvolemic or what their volume status is, let's say, or right atrial pressure, or uh, SVC collapse, or what, any of these other things, actually is not, it, it's okay, and that's a whole other talk for another day. It's okay, but it ain't great. It's, it's not really that perfect, but it's what we got. Next slide, please. Anesthesia volume for the pump, uh, before pump they gave 800. Our primary volume was 1300, we wrapped 500. Uh, even though I don't wrap, I don't believe in it, I think it's a bad idea. Again, bad idea, bad, bad ideas are, you know what that leads to, good people doing really bad things. Um, urine output uh, was 200, cell saver was 100, Del Nido dose was 1000. So taking all everything we added up and subtracted, our total volume for the pump uh, contribution to the patient's circulating volume is 2,900. The on-pump reservoir volume is now 3,400 cc's. That's what you got in the tank, okay? And you're flowing along it. Good flow, everything looks good. Turn, next slide. So how much is the patient now fluid positive? Okay, well, we really don't know, and we assume a lot because of the things that I just discussed. The CVP is zero, so we know the heart's empty. We've got plenty of flow, plus all the added volume is now in the reservoir of refilling the venous capacitance system and restoring the PMS, or is it instead third spacing? We don't know the answer to that either. Next slide. 
predicted crit is now 22. So I basically took the red cell volume, divided it by the now new total blood volume and got them what would be the predicted uh, hematocrit. Uh, we don't know what the COP is because we don't measure it. We didn't run an albumin or anything on pump, which we probably need to. But do we know where the volume is? What is the PMSF? What is the vascular tone? What is the status of volume in the interstitium? Again, we really just don't know. There are ways to know, but it takes work and it takes changing how we do things. Next slide, please. And it's not really that hard. So final thoughts. If you are not flowing enough in this patient, to provide the required DO2 because of cannula size, circuit limitations, you're flowing, you're flowing what you think is enough, but you, you thought would be enough, should be enough, but isn't enough for whatever reason. And you're not flowing enough at this moment in time. Just let's assume that. And there's nothing mechanically wrong. The patient is, you know, is, is, has an, I mean, the 3,400 cc's in your reservoir. You can't flow anymore because you overflow your cannula, but it's just not enough, okay? That's the scenario. You have a normal SVR, okay? So you have that normal vascular tone. You've corrected your COP to have a normal plasma refill rate. Now you've given albumin to try to deal with that. It was in your prime, let's say. The patient is not making much in the way of urine at that moment. You have 3.8 liters of volume in your reservoir and you remove 2.8 liters of that with ultrafiltration. Again, from an open reservoir, we use an open system. Even a bag is kind of an open system. It's not truly an open system, but it's still an open system because it's a, it's a displaceable reservoir, right? Um, and you raise your crit from 22 to 28, increasing your O2 content per per you know vials percent therefore your flow being the same you're now delivering more oxygen to the tissue mm -hmm. under that scenario and you still have a liter of volume in the tank okay plenty of flow tell me how we're causing aki that's my question my question for anybody anybody that can answer that question for me and calls in will get john's houseboat <laughs> doesn't matter who it is Call in, you'll get it. You'll get cups, you'll get, you'll get something. I'm telling you, you will get something. You'll get a free trip out here. You'll get a free, if you can convince me that anything that I just discussed or described causes AKI, help me understand that. I'll wear a man bun for the entirety of the next show. I'll do whatever you want me to do, I don't care. No, but I'm gonna get a stick on man bun. They have them, I'm gonna get one. So next slide, please. Redneck murders are hard to solve. There are no dental records and all the DNA is the same. <laughs> okay, any questions? You don't have to stay focused on that slide, you can't change. Oh, do we have Keith here? I see Keith in the background, Keith. Where are you, hey Keith? Hey guys, good morning. Hey. Uh, I I'm, don't know those two new panelists, but hi, John, and uh, that's I'm Tammy, glad to, uh, Tammy, and that's uh, Min Tran, Tammy mm -hmm. Sparacino, and Min Tran. And y'all, uh, y'all, that's Keith, uh, Keith Smolik. Mm -hmm. You know Keith from Global, uh, from Global Blood Resources. Mm -hmm. He's the hemo bad guy. Hemo bad guy. Yes, <laughs> Tammy knew you. <laughs> Not personally. All right, Tammy, thank you. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, great talk. I can't, you know, uh, can't deny anything that you've said. 
I think it is so important that a lot of people don't pay attention is that every single thing an anesthesiologist does to you tends to dilate you. And what are anesthesiologists taught? Volume, volume, volume. Mm -hmm. Instead of instead of trying to get that SVR back to normal, they're all tr uh, taught to uh, challenge the starling. So give volume test, volume test, volume test. But we all know that it all floats back out third space, you know. So the key is to have a normal SVR and a good colonismotic pressure. So you're drawing that fluid back in on the ven venule side. So, you know, hydrostatically on the arterial side, it's pushing it out. Delivering all the nutrients and oxygen and all those good things, but on the venule side, if you don't have a good cholesterol pressure, it's not going to go anywhere unless it's pulled back in. Now, normally, you and I and everybody sitting around here, we have a system called lymphatics, so the body's natural sewer system, but that's paralyzed because it only works with skeletal muscle movements. Everybody's paralyzed on a table, so until they get that tube out of their mouth, their lymphatics is essentially paralyzed. So it's it really boils down to good SVR and good colonismotic pressure. If you have those two things, you can help regulate that volume a lot better. Third mm -hmm. space in that fluid a lot less. Very good point, very good points. Yeah, I was telling Joe, I guess it was last night, um, we were talking about um, the way I've always learned about it and the way I've always read about it. And what I believe is that the minute, the instant we go on bypass, you automatically have several strikes against you when it comes to third spacing for several reasons. One, you just brought up a very good point. Your lymph system, which takes your interstitial fluid and naturally returns it slowly back into your venous system, uh, is really not working very well, if at all, because you're paralyzed. Number two, not fully understood, but a non-pulsatile flow automatically tends towards third spacing. So if you have, uh, if you do go on bypass, and you've added things to your prime to where you're just isoosmotic, you're still gonna third space because of those two reasons. The non-pulsatile flow allows for more vascular permeability and your lymphatic system is not returning the natural fluid that it would normally bring back. So it almost tends you to think we should be a little bit hyperosmotic on bypass just to keep from third spacing. You don't wanna so, cause that demyelination so, syndrome. So here's, uh, here's an interesting thing. Um, when I went to work at my first job, they were having their routine patient was 10 to 15 pounds overweight in the ICU. And we did have a lot of volume, a lot of cardioplegia volume. I was very aggressive with the hemoconcentrator and I was only there about six weeks, new kid out of school. And one of the surgeons came up to me, what are you doing to my patient? I'm like, oh geez, now what, what have I done? What are you doing to my patient? I'm thinking, what have I done now? He says, my patients are only two to three pounds overweight. I've never seen that before. We've always had patients here 10 to 15 pounds overweight. I said, well, I'm just you know, removing a lot of that volume on pump. So it was actually a very good thing. But let me ask you this. Have you ever had a patient come off a of bypass who was weighed less than when he started? I've never heard of that. No, probably not. Right, so, what so. All, even all of our efforts, prime with albumin, our mannitol, maybe some people do the hemoconcentrator, maybe, I've seen people prime with Lasix. You've, I don't know if anybody's ever had a patient weigh less in the ICU than they did in the OR. So even over all these efforts, they still third space. Mm -hmm. They still third space. So you have a- That's a very good point. You have a good, you ha you're at war with this third spacing, the way I look at it. So, um, you know, uh, it just automatically wants to happen. 
And we have to try to, you know, we have to try to reverse that because the third spacing, while you, it's not just going into the feet and the hands, it's going into all your organs too. And this is going to decrease your, your time in the ICU is going to be increased. Extubation time's longer. Your cardiac function on inotropes is going to be longer. Your ICU stays are going to be longer. And the patients that, that I did this with, uh, all, all were discharged a lot quicker from the ICU because their functions yeah. were better. I agree, and, and, and I think a lot of people also underappreciate how significant interstitial edema is at reducing microcirculatory blood flow. Mm -hmm. So as you continue to third space, you start creating essentially a global, if you will, parenchymal, the, the, the organ itself, Compartment syndrome, where you are increasing the pressure mm -hmm. on the microcirculatory system, mm -hmm. making it very difficult to flow through it. What are your guys' thoughts on on ultrafiltration, you know, volume statuses? What do you what's your experience been? What do you think, and what has your experience been in terms of managing these things with the other clinicians you have to work with? Um, I mean, I I agree. Like, um, you know. You know, as soon as you go bypass, I mean, you, the patient, you know, gets all these inflammatory responses. You know, you have all this increased permeability and, and all those spaces and patient gets fluid overload. So you definitely have to stay ahead and, you know, try to uh, get that, you know, oncotic pressure up and, you know, give albumin and, you know, replace it. Um, I mean, I think that's why I, I'm, I, I'm an advocate of wrapping because, you know, the less hemodilution I can, you know, uh, hit the patient with, then I think that's going to save the patient from losing red cells and you know losing, you know, um, diluting that albumin and proteins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're not a bad person. <laughs> well, let me just that's interject a, something. Bad idea, Joe. Let me let me just. But say, the patient so, still. I'm not taking the volume away from the patient. I'm just uh, reducing the 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 fluid that I'm giving to the patient mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the, because the blood is still going to you know go back into the patient as soon as I go on bypass mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. just taking a much borrowing it for a few seconds exactly. so, so so think about this for a second mm -hmm. if you're a person who loves low prime volume we all mm -hmm. do if you're a person who likes wrapping you should be the biggest fan there is of hemoconcentration because mm -hmm. it does both of those things mm -hmm. and it removes inflammatories which mm -hmm. wrapping doesn't do of well, course. But so, don't you I think mean, a combination of ultrafiltration right, and right, wrapping right. Absolutely. Is, needs absolutely. to be I mean, done no, together? No, 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 no. She's tricking you. <laughs> no, she's, she's tricking so you. If, think about what she if, just if said. You, if you, you don't believe in wrapping, do you? Well, I think you should do it to a small extent because, listen, for, for 25 years of, of millions of dollars of research went into, can we make this arterial line filter 25 cc smaller? Mm -hmm. Can we make this oxygenator 50 cc's less of yeah. prime? Can we squeeze some out of the heat, from the heat exchanger side? Everybody was focused on lower primes, lower primes, lower primes. Here's a technique that doesn't cost a dime to do, and you can decrease your prime by three, four, 500 cc's, mm -hmm. and it takes no expense whatsoever. Didn't take hundreds of million dollars of research to invent a new device. We just do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think you, you, you should do it. It's there waiting for you to do. Mm -hmm. But why are you doing that? What he just said, Min, is correct. You're not going to dilute the patient. You're not going to, you're keeping your osmotic pressures up. You're not diluting your hematocrit. So hemoconcentrator does all those things, and it removes inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So you should probably wrap to some extent. Now, you're opposed to people wrapping when it starts to 
cause ST elevation or ST depression. Well, That's no, really not, your biggest no, concern. I think if you have to treat the patient with Neo, if you have to treat right, right. the patient to give them a blood pressure because you are making them so hypovolemic while you do this, then I believe that the risk-benefit ratio is imbalanced to too high of a risk. And especially when I see them going backwards through the arterial line, retrograde through the arterial line, again, I think, although maybe only a small risk, but air entrapment into the arterial line or some other incident occurring while you're doing that, mm. to me, is not worth, I just don't think it's worth the risk. Because if, it, what would it wrap, 500 cc's, 600 cc's, I can go and bypass and while I'm going on ultrafiltrate out 500 cc's, before the blood makes it down the venous line all the way and back up to the end of the arterial line. If you have so, vacuum on it. Huh? If you have vacuum on it. Yeah, of course. I always put vacuum, but I always put vacuum on mine. Oh, okay. Not a lot of people do that. I, I, that's high ultrafiltrate. I turn it on. I turn it on mm -hmm. Neptune at max max back. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, I get serious about this. Yeah. So, uh, Keith, what's your thoughts? I'm, I'm okay. anti-wrap, they're pro-wrap. I think just ultrafiltrate it off as rapidly as you can and the, 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 the almost momentarily, momentary at best 500 cc in out um, is inconsequential. Plus I think you're kind of doing a flush, but go ahead. Okay, so I am a proponent of wrap and VAP. Um, what I've seen or what I was taught in, in, back many, many, 15 years ago, was to do it very, very slowly through your stopcock, you know, connected to the cell saver. So basically, you had a line going off of your manifold that went to the cell saver, and you could control how much with the stopcock, how much fluid was coming down, how much fluid was going forward. And we used the arterial filter as like the promontory pass. So we would take a little bit of venous blood, and then we would shuttle it all the way out through the arterial filter to the cart, uh, cell saver. And then once we got to the, the uh, arterial filter, we stopped mm. and we moved the clamps and then we did arterial back to the arterial filter. And essentially the entire circuit, I'm not lying, essentially the entire circuit was primed with the patient. Mm. Now, do you need to give some Neo? Unfortunately, yes. Sometimes an anesthesiologist needs to play ball with you and give a little tiny bit of Neo in order to keep that pressure up. Well, but what happens? It's more than just a little teeny bit of Neo, number one. And number two, here you're telling me that you're taking a patient, so you're accepting, you're accepting hypoperfusion for however long this takes you to do this versus a transient period of time of getting uh, a, a a, a thousand cc's maybe you could maybe wrap just the venous side but i mean you're you're going all out here and for what i'm sorry i didn't okay. mean to interrupt you but go ahead okay so like I'm i said i'm gonna convince you otherwise well i again i i'm open to everything as you know so the deal is i told you before anesthesia does not play with the s they they let it dilate out so they've got a patient they think is okay but really it's you know 800 900 thousand it's not 1300 where it should be, okay? So they do need to tighten the patient up a little bit because everything that they've done is dilated the patient, including giving them a lot of fluid. Mm -hmm. There are two papers, one that I sent you by your cell phone, which is really important. And then of course, there's the classic one, the Chappelle article on fluid balance. Uh, pop that up real quick here. Um, Chappelle's paper says, a rational approach to, to perioperative fluid management. 
This guy wrote this paper back in 2008. It is still the gold standard of fluid management for anesthesia and surgery. The other paper that I sent you, which is really important, it just came out in the fall, is uh, early negative fluid balance is associated with lower mortality after cardiac surgery. Yeah, there you go. And and that there was, uh, again, that, that was in uh, JECT. Or no, it was in uh, perfusion. And basically, the, their conclusion was this observational study indicates that a negative fluid balance is associated with lower postoperative morb morbidity and mortality in critically ill patients in cardiac surgery. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any, any better than that. So, again, this two days of uh, talks that you guys have been doing on fluid balance, everybody needs to clue in, again, having a good colorosmotic pressure and a good SVR. Mm -hmm. If you get those two things, you're not going to lose so much fluid third space. You won't give so much fluid. You won't get into the spiral where you need to give blood products and everything else. And then, of course, the easiest, absolute easiest things to follow patients is weight change and how much chest tube drainage. I know. We've gotten those are the, from that. They cost. Change. How much do those things cost? They're free. Yeah. So, I've got two people that are doing studies right now, and that's some of their observances, is uh, how much weight did they put on and how much chest tube drainage. Again, cost nothing. Those are just obs observational things. Um, the goal, obviously, is not to give people uh, – hemodilution is the enemy. You know, some people say, oh, well, we glute these people out. We uh, – what is that? Uh, A&H. So yes. they, they give – they take fluid off the patient so that they can have it at the end of the case. Yeah. Oh, the, plate, the platelets aren't beat up. Well, guess what? About 60 to 80% of those platelets are still functional in the pump blood at the end of the case. Yes. Mm -hmm. So why, why would you think that the blood you drew off earlier than that was going to be any better? And the you blood know? that you put in the bag has lost probably a, an equal amount of them just by being in the bag. Yep, and even though they rock it for a couple of hours and this, uh, again, I, I don't want to poo-poo it because there are people that swear by it, but I still say that if you do all the other things, and again, it's not one thing, mm -hmm. it's it's everything, it's multidisciplinary, multimodality, right. and that's what works. I always said it was easy. Uh, we would we would treat a, a, a lady who was uh, 60 kilos, Jehovah Witness in the morning for an AVR, and her crit was, let's say it was 35, you know, coming in the room, but we never gave her blood products, mm -hmm. not at all. But in the afternoon, we had another 60 year old woman or, you know, a 60 kilo woman and her crit was 37, but somehow she got blood. We just didn't pay attention as much. We didn't watch like a child, how people hover and everybody watches each other. You want to treat every single patient like they were a Jehovah Witness with a small BSA. And if you can do that, you can avoid giving blood products to almost, almost everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. I think that those are all very good points. Okay. Um, I think we're, uh, uh, can we take a five no, minute break nice. and then we'll get you teed up? Just a five minute break though. We're not going to be gone long. So, um, David? We'll go to five minutes. We'll see y'all back in five minutes, okay? Thank you. Thanks, Clint. Hey, Keith, thank you. Yep. You're very welcome. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. We appreciate that from you very much. Okay, you guys have a good day. I'm going back to the farm. You too. Come have a break with us. We're doing a crawfish boil. Okay. Thanks. See you guys. Bye.
ready. Hey, we're live. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Min will be right back after he finishes his cup of coffee. We're going to jump right into uh, John's next talk, how ECMO contributes to maintaining kidney dysfunction and casually participates in the development of AKI. And I hope you're also going to talk about how we can attenuate that since we do a whole lot of ECMO, and I know you do too. All right, moving on. Next. John, okay, the floor you. is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Joe. So let's see if our slide clicker is going to work. Over here. And it is not working. Let me see. So I try. told you this thing's not working. It's not working. Next slide, please. Okay, so, um, so anybody out there listening, um, this is going to be a pretty involved lecture. It's quite extensive. I'll try to go through it and, and make sense of it. Um, but one of, the, one of the big references, and when I use a reference very heavily in a talk, I want to uh, leave it up front and let you know up front that this was one of the big uh, review articles that I, that I used on this lecture, in addition to other references. But this one really was a, a real complete, comprehensive review of what I wanted to talk about. So uh, Dr. Katz, uh, Dr. Villa and Dr. Katz on this topic did an article in 2015 <clears throat> on cardiorenal medicine, and they did a real good review, comprehensive review. Go ahead, next slide. So, what is the incidence of AKR, AKI, and, rest, and, and renal replacement therapy on ECMO? Just to give you some uh, idea of what we're talking about, this was a paper in 2010, European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery by Dr. Jan and his colleagues, uh, acute kidney injury in adult post-cardiotomy patients with ECMO, and they evaluated using the rifle classification and Aiken. Uh, next slide, please. So they took 67 adults, age 37 to 63, post-cardiac surgery who received ECMO. Next. And their results, um, the incidence of AKI during the first 48 hours of ECMO was 83%. Next slide. The in-hospital in mortality rate the uh, renal replacement therapy patients had a 73%, and the non-renal replacement therapy patients had 32%. Next, please. So here's a, an article by Dr. Kyle Steen and his colleagues, 2013, Nephrology, Dialysis, and Transplant. They did an article called Renal Function and Survival in, in Patients Undergoing ECMO. Next. They took 200 patients, adult, age 17 to 83, all patients received ECMO. Next slide. The results, 60% of the patients received uh, renal replacement therapy, 40% were not, did not receive renal uh, replacement therapy. The 90-day mortality rate on the renal replacement therapy was 83%. The 90-day mortality rate with patients that did not require RRT was 47%. Uh, next, please. So renal injury, this is a paradoxic progression. Next. I got line by lines. So AKI in patients on ECMO is mainly due to the hemodynamic deficiency, first of all, associated with the baseline disease. In other words, if your patient is on ECMO, he obviously had some type of hemodynamic deficiency, uh, hypoxic state, that brought him to being coming on ECMO in the first place. Uh, next. <clears throat> So now, the now vulnerable kidney is then exposed to a considerable stressor, i.e., the ECMO circuit. Next. 
So while ECMO effectively supports organ function, it also contributes to maintaining the kidney's dysfunction through several mechanisms. Next. So the aim is to understand the mechanisms responsible for maintaining acute kidney injury in ECMO patients. Next. And to identify their physiological pathways. Next slide. So the factors derived from ECMO therapy that cause or maintain AKI. Next slide. We have three things. We have, first of all, we have the patient-related factors. These are things that the patient already had, came with before we, before we put them on, uh, before we put on the ECMO. Next slide. The second one is those things that occurred on ECMO and those ECMO-related factors. And then uh, the next slide shows um, the cannulation and access-related factors. All three of these we're going to look at indiv individually and all the different uh, things under each one that um, are factors that either maintain or cause uh, AKI and related to ECMO. Uh, next, please. So now let's look under patient-related factors. This is pre-ECMO occurrences. Uh, next. So, we, um, so the patient... The patient history. A patient comes to us with certain risk factors. Okay, next. You can kind of go through these. Renal failure, diabetes mellitus, if they have that. Hypertension, these are all risk factors. Uh, infection, anything with a, a elevated uh, white blood cell count. COPD, left ventricular failure, all again leading to hypoxic states, possibly poor delivery of oxygen, peripheral vascular disease. Uh, if they're a smoker, if they have hyperlipidemia, and then finally, if, if most of our patients at some point in time receive contrast, contrast either in the cath lab or during a CT scan actually, all these things, uh, uh, contrast have an increase, a pretty significant increased rate of, of AKI. Uh, next please. So hypoxia due to the baseline disease, i.e. the reason for ECMO. It's a cardiac or respiratory failure, but it results in some type of tissue hypoxia, which is the reason why they came on ECMO. So next slide. So now, also uh, pre-ECMO, pre what about the various pharmaceuticals that they receive? And there's so many, so many of these are actually nephrotoxins. So we have NSAIDs and ACE inhibitors. Um, next slide. And those alter your renal autoregulation. And unfortunately, they alter it to the downside because they disrupt your renal autoregulation. We talked a lot about that yesterday. And it actually ends up being a detriment. So ACE inhibitors, people who take NSAIDs, some of us do that uh, on a normal course of regulating our own blood pressure and so on. Uh, it does alter your uh, renal autoregulation. Uh, next, is it working? No? Okay. Uh, Diuretics and antiviral drugs. These, many of these, uh, cause swelling and inflammation of the kidney. Uh, next, uh, vasopressors almost universally reduce renal blood flow because they vasoconstrict the afferent arterial, which is a, the, the arterial that leads directly into the, the glomerulus of the nephron. Then you have all, a lot of your antivirals, antibacterials, uh, drugs, uh, zoledronic acid and your contrast, as I mentioned before, all of these in some way or another are nephrotoxic, okay? And there's many more than what we could list on this slide, but this gives you a good overview of what the patient could have been on or exposed to even before we put them on ECMO. 
Next slide, please. So now we have the ECMO-related factors, those things that are maintaining or causing AKI while we're on ECMO. Hemodynamic factors, go ahead. Under that, you have delivery of oxygen, pulsatile flow, which is really, when we're on ECMO, we're going to talk about this, we have a mix of the native pulsatile flow of the patient and the non-pulsatile uh, pump flow. Uh, then we have reperfusion injury, because remember, the patient was ischemic, hypoxic, which led him to become on ECMO. So we almost always have some type of reperfusion injury, and a lot of times it's on a global scale, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Next. So then we have, our, in addition to hemodynamic factors, we have our hormonal factors. And that would be our renin-angiotensin system. We're going to talk about that. Atrial nitriatic peptides. And we also have then finally a big one, of course, the inflammatory response. So these are the general things we're going to talk about, ECMO-related factors contributing to AKI. Next slide. So let's look at the hemodynamic factors real quick. Delivery of oxygen. DO2, the formula, as you know, is blood flow times the oxygen content of the blood. Uh, what does that break down to? Blood flow being Q, the formula there, 1.36 times hemoglobin times saturation, plus a small factor with the PO2. So any factors which alter the DO2, which is blood flow, hemoglobin, arterial saturation, and partial pressure of oxygen, will have a direct impact on the delivery of oxygen to the tissues and will contribute most likely to AKI. There's a lot of studies that done on delivery of oxygen and AKI. So just to give you some idea, somebody was asking earlier about what should the hemoglobin be? Well, if you're anemic and it's, and it's hurting your delivery of oxygen level, you're going to have a, a propensity to AKI. Any low flow state, vasopressors almost always constrict in the worst possible place when it comes to the, the kidneys. Any low cardiac output syndrome. Go ahead. Hypoxic state, emboli, hypovolemia, hypotension. Just to give you some, there's a long list of these. But anything that detrimentally affects the delivery of oxygen. Go ahead. So now let's look at what I call the interplay of the native pulsatile flow and the non-pulsatile pump flow of the ECMO. Uh, the significance of pump of pulsatile flow in renal perfusion is well documented. However, it's a little bit poorly understood. But here's a paper by Dr. Askenazi who did one in uh, Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology 2012, and also Dr. Nomoto down in Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2003, and their conclusions were very similar. In hemodynamically stable patients requiring VV ECMO, where the patient's pulsatile flow is still native, the native pulsatile cardiac output maintained minimal negative de deleterious effects on renal function. Next one. <clears throat> so. Next slide, interplay of uh, native and pulsatile flow. Many studies have demonstrated there is a benefit of pulsatile flow to the kidneys and a, and a reduction of AKI, but we don't really fully understand why that is. When you compare cardiopulmonary bypass to ECMO, in ECMO we often have the advantage of providing a shared circulation, as I said, patient's native heart combined with the ECMO pump. So due to this interplay between the pulsatile native heart and the ECMO pump, we can often have the benefit of some amount of pulsatile flow, and this does tend to reduce our AKI. So you can see there where the red arrow is that we don't have the perfect pulsatile flow because we have a patient who we're supporting non-pulsatile, and they also are contributing to some pulsatile flow. But even this amount has shown to be a, a little bit of a benefit in reducing AKI. Next one. 
So let's look at reperfusion injury following the ischemic event that led them to become on ECMO. Now, I just put this as a, right in the middle of the center of the slide, reperfusion injury is the most major cause of AKI. We talk about this a lot, right? Reperfusion injury, what, what is reperfusion injury? Reperfusion injury is caused when the blood supply returns to the tissue after a period of ischemia or anoxia. Now that sounds like the perfect thing. If you're ischemic, let's fix the problem and return a good blood supply. But it's paradoxic. It's a paradoxic tissue response by the ischemic tissues following the restoration of blood flow and tissue oxygenation, whereby the restoration of the, of the circulation results in oxidative damage and subsequent inflammation. So it's the excess production of a reactive oxygen species that is the critical factor in the genesis of reperfusion injury. So the dominant cellular and enzymatic sources of excess reactive oxygen species are, to give you some idea, xanthin oxidase. And this is an enzyme that catalyzes the oxidation reaction, which forms uric acid, and in doing so generates reactive oxygen species. O2 free radicals. But in reperfusion injury, it produces these free radicals which cause tissue injury. Next. Now we have something called NADPH oxidase, NOx also called. Uh, what this is, go ahead. It's activated NADPH oxidase generates a superoxide during an immune response. And then we have the mitochondria. This mitochondrial functions in the initiation and development of inflammation. A lot of people don't realize that. Next one. And we also have nitric oxide synthase. This is a, a, a catalyzes nitrous oxide, which is then a pro-inflammatory mediator that induces inflammation. So go ahead. So reperfusion injury following ischemic event, what is the pathophysiology of this? Reperfusion of ischemic tissues first results in microvascular injury. So the injured endothelial cells produce more reactive oxygen species resulting in an inflammatory response. This is largely what's responsible for the reperfusion injury. This then leads to a permeability of capillaries and diffusion of fluid across the tissues resulting in swelling, i.e. third space. Now the white blood cells then respond to the tissue damage. This then releases a whole host of inflammatory factors, interleukins, free radicals, cytokines, macrophages, platelet activation, complement activation. The white blood cells then bind to the endothelium, obstructing small capillaries, leading to more ischemia. Okay? Now, what happens on ECMO? Healthy tissues, first of all, normally contain free radical scavengers, because we have O2, O2 um, reactive oxidative species normally in our system, but our tissues contain these radical scavengers normally, and this prevents uh, tissue damage from these oxidizing species. But once there's been a systemic hypoxic event that led to the ECMO, the ischemic tissue now has a decreased function of these protective O2 uh, scavengers. So then when the adequate circulation returns, brings in this oxygen free radicals that normally wouldn't damage the tissue, but that does now damage the ischemic tissue because the protective function of the endothelium is now greatly diminished. This is why it, why it happens. The restored blood flow reintroduces oxygen within the cells that now damages cellular proteins, DNA, and the plasma membrane. 
Damage to the cell's membrane causes the release of more free radicals. And since there's been a global systemic hypoxic event, the effect is usually widespread. Okay, so this is why it's such a large inflammatory response. So this, this results in a massive inflammatory response, which then incites interleukins. These are cytokines that upregulate the immune response and inflammation. Then you have oxygen-free radicals. These are toxic byproducts of oxygen metabolism that damage cells and tissues. You then have cytokines. This is a broad term, by the way, for a large number of proteins and peptides that mediate immunity and inflammation. Macrophages, what are those? Those are white blood cells that engulf other cells. Foreign substances, cellular debris, microbes, even cancer cells, actually anything that is not indicative of health. Platelets, those are thrombocytes whose function normally is to initiate coagulation by enlarging and adhering together. Those are activated. And then finally, you have the complement system. Complement is a part of your immune system that enhances the immune system's ability to clear foreign microbes and promotes phagocytosis. So all of this is going on in the inflammatory response. And <clears throat> we're going to look at all these a little bit more closely also. So next slide. OK, so now we're going to look at the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. We're going to look at what, how it normally functions. Then we're going to look at what happens on, on ECMO. So what is, what is RAS? It's angiotensinogen, converts to angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, and finally aldosterone. So it's a bit of a cascade, three or four steps. So angiotensinogen is naturally produced by the liver, and it's freely circulating normally in our blood. But renin is released by the kidneys in response to a low blood pressure. This gets the process started. Renin converts angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1. Then the cascade continues. Angiotensin 1 is now in the system. And as it passes through the pulmonary beds, which is where ACE, angiotensin conversion enzyme, resides, ACE converts angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. Now we're getting somewhere because angiotensin 2, go ahead, then angiotensin 2 now has been created. Angiotensin 2 is really where the rubber hits the road because this is where we get uh, start, start having things, things, things occur differently because it stimulates the adrenal gland to secrete aldosterone. Aldosterone is a strong antidiuretic, okay? So this is how we get to aldosterone. So now, looking at it graphically to understand it a little bit easier, angiotensin, genogen, angiotensinogen, normally released by the liver, it's circulating in our blood at all times. Then, in response to a drop in blood pressure, the kidneys immediately reduce, uh, secrete renin. Renin then trans, uh, converts angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is in the bloodstream, comes through the lung tissue, comes in contact with ACE, angioconversion enzyme, which then makes angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 gets converted. Now angiotensin 2 has two very powerful functions. First of all, it's a direct arterial vasoconstrictor. Number two, it, go ahead. It directly influences the adrenal glands to secrete aldosterone. Ne next slide. Angiotensin II is what you really want to focus on when, when, when we're talking about this, because it's a vasoconstrictor and secretion of aldosterone, which is antidiuretic. Next slide. If it's an antidiuretic, it decreases urine output, which increases blood volume, and those two things put together cause an increased blood pressure. So the kidneys accomplished what it set out to do. It sensed 
a drop in blood pressure, and it caused this cascade to produce angiotensin II. So just stopping for a minute, everybody's heard of ACE inhibitors as an antihypertensive. Mm -hmm. Well, if you see there, if you don't have ACE, you can't produce angiotensin II. You can't vasoconstrict. So this is why it's uh, it's a it's a antihypertensive. Okay. Next uh, next slide. But what occurs during bypass? We're going to talk about bypass real quick. We're also going to talk about ECMO. What are the effects of ACE? There was an article that was published, Dr. Uh, Gorin and his associates. This goes back into the 80s. Here, I, I just got it. What do you got? What's your, where you're going. Oh, okay. So now, <laughs> they looked at the fact that um, when you went on bypass, after the lung was isolated, meaning it's no longer in the system, ACE levels fell rapidly. Well, that's, the, the ACE is living inside the lung tissue. So if the blood isn't circulating through the lungs. So after 20 minutes of bypass, they said it was a 33% drop in the baseline values of circulating ACE. Within 10 minutes of, of restoration of lung perfusion, the ACE rose back all the way up to 90% of baseline values. So what happens on ECMO, though? Okay, There's a decrease in blood pressure, may prompt and will prompt the kidneys to release the renin, right? The kidneys want that blood pressure to come back up. However, renin and ACE may be greatly reduced or blocked altogether. We're going to talk about why. Resulting in severe vasodilation, lower blood pressure, poor renal perfusion. All of this is a possible cause of AKI. So the kidney wants the blood pressure to come up. But let's see why on ECMO it may not be able to. So, but on ECMO, how might the renin or ACE be limited or blocked altogether? So what we have is a decrease in blood pressure is going to prompt the kidneys to release renin, but they may not be capable because of the acute kidney injury. They're not functioning normally. Okay? They may want to release renin, but they may not be capable of it. And VA ECMO in particular, think about it, a large portion of the blood bypasses the lungs. We're essentially on perfusion, right? Central cannulation, VA, a large portion of the blood is not going through the lungs anymore. This is going to limit your conversion of angiotensin 1 into the angiotensin 2 that's going to cause you to vasoconstrict. And patients with ARDS, the injured lungs can't produce as much ACE. They're injured. They're not functioning normally. Less angiotensin 2 gets, gets produced. Other conditions such as sepsis where endotoxinemia actually can deactivate ACE. So this results in much less ACE being utilized or produced results in severe decrease in blood pressure and decreased renal perfusion. This is what can happen on VA ECMO. So looking at it from the graph again, you have the normal angiotensinogen secreted by the liver. Kidneys sense a drop in blood pressure. It secretes renin. The renin's going to convert angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1's going to come through the lungs and hopefully get converted into angiotensin 2. But what happens on ECMO? In certain ECMO settings, the, the kidneys aren't able to, because they're injured, secrete the right amount of renin, or any. If you, are on, um, if you have acute lung injury, the lungs aren't secreting ACE. If you're bypassing the lungs because you're on VA ECMO, you're getting very little ACE. So look, the angiotensin II, very little is being produced. If that happens, you don't have vasoconstriction. You actually might have vasodilatation. So if you have a drop in blood pressure, you may not even be able to increase it through this method. Well, this, okay? is, this is a perfect, I think, description of vasoplegia. Could be. One of the One of them, right. There may be another reason, but, you know, we've seen patients that mm -hmm. were vasoplegic that we mm -hmm. couldn't get the blood pressure up no matter, no matter what we did. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, I'm sorry. So if you don't have angiotensin 2, which is a vasoconstrictor, 
See, you always have certain levels of all of these circulating in your system. It's not all or nothing. You have a modest amount that's keeping our homeostasis. When you have something that wipes it out below normal, it has the opposite effect. So if you wipe out your angiotensin II, you're going to end up being um, dropping your, your vasoconstrictor. You're actually being vasodilate, which is what your opposite wanted to do. It also can't uh, stimulate the adrenal gland to stimulate aldosterone. So now, aldosterone, which is antidiuretic, if you take the aldosterone out, you have a diuretic effect. This increases the urine output, which also drops blood volume. Those two things put together are going to further drop your blood pressure, which was your problem in the first place, which is why kidneys secreted renin. You had too low of a blood pressure. Now, the next slide. This, it can cause AKI. So now you were on ECMO. You're asking how does ECMO help or contribute or maintain AKI? Because your renin angiotensin system is either blocked or incapacitated, you can't naturally bring your own blood pressure up. Why are people on so much rocket fuel trying to get the blood pressure up? Because the normal hemostasis of the system is not, is, is not able to function properly. Kidney injury, lung injury, not able to produce the normal uh, angiotensin system. Okay, next. Let's talk about, Joe, I know you love this topic, and you asked me to I talk do. about this. It's so, it's, and this is something I think per, perfusionists forget about. I have forgotten about this in my career. Atrial natriuretic peptide. Let's talk about what happens with this and what it is. ANP is secreted by the cardiac muscles of the atria. 80% of it's in the atria. We have some in the ventricles. But let's focus on the atria. These cells contain stretch receptors which respond to increased atrial blood volume. That's, that's their job. You have an overdistension, and they're going to be responding to that. So ANP, atrial nitriatic peptide, it also directly innervates the kidneys. It doesn't have to go through a cascade process. It sends signals directly to the kidneys. The main function of ANP is to cause a reduction in intravascular volume by increasing your output and causing vasodilatation. Okay? Now, so ANP acts directly on the kidney to increase urine output in three ways. Let's look how it does it. It directly dilates the afferent arterial, increasing blood flow through the glomerulus, increases, therefore increases GFR. It also has an effect on the permeability of the glomerular tubules. Not only does it increase GFR, it's increasing their permeability as well. That's the effect of ANP, which really increases in a urine output. Okay? Then it inhibits the renin secretion system. If it does that, you have an inhibited production of angiotensin II, which then, instead of being a vasoconstrictor, your angiotensin II levels drop way off, you, you end up in vasodilatation. Again, remember, the ANP is responding to an overdistension. It thinks there's too much blood volume on board. So it's going to work to decrease the production of aldosterone, which then increases urine output, i.e., decreasing the volume overload that it thinks is going on. Then, But at the same time, constricting or dilating the right. afferent arteriole so that you get more renal blood flow mm -hmm. for that same blood pressure. Right. Okay, so go back one. So now we're going to talk, go back one. Oh, you know, actually you went forward. Okay, keep going. Yeah, forward. So now, but what happens on ECMO or bypass? Because remember, we're cannulating normally, right? Cannulate the right mm -hmm. atrium on bypass. So what is happening with this? Because this is a system that responds to an overdistension of volume for the most part. Since atrial distension is the stimulus for ANP release, ANP release depends on the distension of the atria at any given moment. It's going to fire or not fire, right? So either you're going to have ANP secretion due to an elevated atrial filling pressure, which could be elevated blood volume or could be right heart failure, 
or you're going to have A and P is very greatly reduced due to a low atrial filling pressure, or in the case of bypass, maybe even a negative atrial filling pressure, because you've got the cannula there, right? Mm -hmm. So this will be either low blood volume or venous drain cannula drainage issue, right? So due to any number of factors in ECMO or cannulation volume management, you could have atrial distension, you could have atrial uh, uh, negative pressures on a cannulation or anything that's going on at any given moment. And this can change moment to moment on bypass, right, or on ECMO. So go to the next one. So now, this is what we're looking at. If there's an elevated blood volume in the right heart, an elevated blood volume in the right atrium due to right heart failure or volume, there's an atrial distension and substantial ANP release because it wants to decrease. So dilation in the arterial, uh, afferent arterial, Joe, increased GFR, increased the pump permeability, it also has that effect, decreases aldosterone production, decreases angiotensin II production, which then, both of those increase urine output, which means decreased blood volume, and then finally, vasodilatation. So if you have an overdistended right atrium, the ANP says, this is what we need to do, lower our volume, vasodilate, I don't need to be distended. I'm over full, right? Okay, now. If there's low blood volume or negative venous drainage pressures, where now we're getting to, for example, on bypass, there's atrial relaxation and no AMP release at all. What happens there? Constriction of the afferent arterial. That's decreased perfusion of the kidney. Mm -hmm. When you go on bypass and the natural atrial nephrotic sensors are used to a, a CVP of positive something, five, eight, 10, you've now went negative, you complete cessation of all your A&P being released. Mm -hmm. The kidneys stink, the blood pressure is zero. Sends a signal to the afferent arterial, vasoconstrict. You drop your glomerular uh, blood flow. You decrease your GFR. You decrease the permeability. You wonder why your urine output's low on bypass? And people are struggling to get the urine output up? The atrium is telling them right now, we have no volume. Don't not release anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so increased aldosterone production. Aldosterone is an antidiuretic. Mm -hmm. What happens? Decrease urine output increased blood volume, then vasoconstriction. Right? This right here, it, now highlighted in, in pink there, purple, it's the afferent vasoconstriction and the vasoconstriction by angiotensin II that can cause acute kidney injury while on perfusion, while on ECMO. Due to your cannulation and your, your uh, volume status in your atrium. So let's look at hormonal, faster, hormonal factors. Systemic inflammation, that's the Sears response, right? This is a big one, big one. Go ahead. What is the Sears response? Systemic inflammatory response syndrome. It's a consequence of a dysregulated or hyperinflammatory response. It can be due to an infection like in sepsis, or it can be due to a non-infectious insult, as in ECMO, right? Sears universally occurs during ECMO and is associated with organ dysfunction and considerable mortality. What is this response? It's recognized. Now this is how people wonder, well, how do I know I have it? What is it? How can I recognize it? This is what you have. You have two or more of the following of these things. Temperature has risen to 38.5, or believe it or not, it can actually become hypothermic. If you become, for unexplained reasons, below 36 degrees or above 38.5, that's one factor, and your heart rate is above 90 beats per minute, go ahead, or your respiratory rate is 20, breaths per minute or faster, and your white blood cell count is 12. If you have any two of these or more, this is from a Sears response, okay? You can also, next slide, go into what's called Sears 
uh, shock. If you have a blood pressure drop on top of it, that's 40 millimeters of mercury or more. So this is what the Sears response do. Usually, you have more than two of these going on. Okay, so, but what happens on ECMO and bypass? The blood is exposed to the extrapural circuit, results in a general term called blood shear stress, okay? Blood shear stress causes two major things to happen. First, it's gonna cause coagulopathies. Second, it's gonna cause sears, systemic inflammatory response. This is global. This is not maybe on some patients, all patients experience this. The sears response is neutrophil storm, it's cytokine storm, it's oxygen free radicals, and it's complement activation. On the coagulopathy side, we have activation of platelets, we have activation of coagulation factors, and we have thromboxane A4 release, which is further stimulation of platelets, and this results in hypercoagulation, fibrinolysis, and microvascular thrombi, okay? That's on the coagulopathy side. Let's look at the systemic inflation side, because what is a neutrophil, note is a neutrophil storm. Mass neutrophil migration, thromboxane and prostaglandins. Hyperinduction of autoamplifying of cytokine production. Oxygen-free radicals, they attack lipids, amino acids, your DNA, your RNA, and your lysosomes. And the complement is a protein cascade promoting cytokines, phagocytes, membrane attack complex. So you want to know why the Sears response is so, so massive and so important, and why you might want to reduce that by removing some of these things, which we were talking about earlier in hemoconcentrator. Look at all the things that are happening when we put somebody on bypass or an ECMO, okay? Go ahead, next slide. So this results in a massive inflammatory response which incites renal tissue damage and AKI. What was the, the topic of, the, uh, of this lecture? How does ECMO contribute to AKI? Because all of these things are happening. Your interleukins, your free radicals, cytokines, microphages, platelets, and complement. Massive inflammatory response. Now let's talk about how cannulation and access-related factors can contribute to uh, maintaining AKI. So we can have distal limb ischemia due to cannulation placement in the femoral artery, right? This ischemia is gonna start uh, reperfusion injury, all the damages of ischemia are gonna send signals of inflammatory response to the kidneys. Compartmental syndrome can develop, right? Again, limb ischemia, reperfusion in injury. Uh, hyper, something called hypermyoglobinemia. This is a breakdown of your muscles where the myoglobin ends up being coming in the blood. Very tissue uh, nephro uh, nephrotoxic. Right, if you have a femoral cannulation and you've had an aortic dissection, guess what's gonna happen to your renal perfusion, renal ischemia. These are all cannula access issues. You can have thrombosis, air embolism. I mean, we've seen many times thrombosis around the cannulas, right? So one more thing I think is up there, yep. So you can have negative pressure and hemolysis. Re 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 resulting in hemoglobinuria, you know? So, you know, if you have a lot of, we see this all the time with, um, with uh, ECMO, where your line is chattering. Yes. Your line, we live with that all the time. Or if you have the cardio help and your negative pressures are alarming. And people sort of, after a while, if you do enough of these, you just kind of get used to it. But I never get used to it. It's because, alarm fatigue. Because, because what happens mm -hmm. is, and, and I want people to think about this too on bypass, not just on ECMO. When you have a line that's chattering, I, I, I thought this was obvious, but apparently maybe not that obvious. The walls of the atrium, the walls of the IVC and the SVC are slamming up against the cannula. Mm -hmm. What do you think that's doing to the endothelium? It's a single layer, one cell layer. 
you're damaging your endothelium, right? Now you have damaged endothelium. That's what's preventing your blood from, from clotting against your intravasculature. Mm -hmm. That's your endothelial layer. So if you have high negative pressures that's causing this chattering, try to reduce it and try to at least minimize it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We all live with it to I some extent. Do. I don't. I mean, I don't think we do. We, we don't in our practice. We, we, we are going to figure out what's going on. Do you really? Yeah, mm -hmm. we'll, turn the, we'll turn the RPMs down. We'll make adjustments. We, we, we won't live with that. Mm. No. So all of these things can or will lead to AKI, just a whole other uh, aspect of, of ECMO, uh, or it could be perfusion. That is one reason why it contributes or can maintain AKI. Go to the next. Let's see what we got here. So in conclusion... ECMO is an effective support therapy for patients for reversible cardiac respiratory therapy or bridge to transplant durable VAD. But it's clear that RRT, you know, renal replacement therapy, is almost always required, provides fluid managed overload, and is beneficial in removal of inflammatory mediators. AKI is frequently observed in ECMO patients and is related to several conditions derived from the ECMO therapy. They're mainly hemodynamic, hormonal, and inflammatory in nature. So, the severe condition of the patient and the many variables of this complex treatment usually do not allow us to exactly identify the pathophysiological mechanism responsible for the AKI. Now, we have people that are on ECMO, and we have AKI, but as you saw from the slide, can we really be sure where it came from? Did it come from the vasoconstriction? Did it come from the toxins? Did it come from a decrease of oxygen flow? Did it, did it come, it come from poor cannulation? Yeah. Did it come from before? Most likely, probably did. So paradoxically, exactly what you just said, the various pathophysiologic pathways responsible for the development of AKI during ECMO are the same ones which produce the pathological conditions requiring the ECMO. <laughs> I got it again. There you go, you got it, huh? Two times in one day. I think that's my last slide. I think I have the references up here. So again, a lot of this came from Dr. Villa and Katz's article, and I believe there is over, you continue with the slide for a second, I think there's 45 references from my talk here that are referenced either in my talk or in that article that they reference. Very good. So there you go. Oh. Excellent job. Very good. I didn't get applause. How come I didn't get an applause? Yeah, you should have got some applause. I did. We get applause for you. I didn't get any. I got none. <laughs> um, so let's talk about um, the inflammatory response I, I, because you've talked about that so much during this time. You've got Crohn's disease. Ulcerative colitis, asthma, psoriasis, eczema, and they give those patients biologics. You look at all of that disease, those disease processes, and what are all those diseases caused from? Well, it sounds like they're all inflammatory. They're all inflammatory. Mm -hmm. yeah, they, mm -hmm. they all involve an invasion of white cells somewhere, leukocytes somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so attenuating it is in actually controlling that. You know, the most recent, you know, thing with, uh, with, uh, with asthma and eosinophil invasion or a high level of them in the lung, mm -hmm. and that's what it blocks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see this all the time, but, but, but for some reason, you know, it's, uh, we, we see it being treated for these various diseases, but in the acute setting, it's really not that... Uh, now, I don't think it's just that well understood, but you know, we used to have Zygris. Does anybody even remember Zygris? Have you ever, do you ever, mm. ever remember that? That was supposed to attenuate for uh, septic shock and uh, SIF for uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, mm. um, using that, but it was, it failed miserably to stop. But it was, it was to block 
the uh, massive infusion mm -hmm. or, or, or invasion rather of uh, white leukocytes into the uh, various uh, 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 endothelial layers and cause that global uh, uh, ischemia that you'd see from essentially that you know, like pulmonary problems and so forth, so forth and so on. So, and that's what it was for, was to block that leukocyte invasion into the, uh, into the cellular walls. Mm. But it didn't work. Mm, that would have been great. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how much, I know, I wonder how much, I wonder how much a protein actually did benefit in that result mm. with calocrine inhibiting uh, units, you know, that it had. Um, and how much of that really, how much of that medication actually did cause AKI now that we look at this, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. retrospectively and how we're better understanding AKI now, you know, and it was always funny to me because the, the guy from Duke, I think his name was uh, Dr. Smith, I had gone to a, a lecture that he was doing where Bayer was paying him to give a lecture on the, the benefits okay. of uh, of uh, uh, trasolol or a protonin, mm -hmm. and uh, at the same exact time he gave that talk, his paper, along with the other Duke representatives, was being um, authors was being published, uh, denouncing uh, a protonin as a cause of uh, acute kidney injury, so kind of causing renal failure. So I thought that was always somewhat of a contradiction for for him, but. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I guess money talks, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, if you look at at least one of the progresses in the last 20 years is the biocoded circuits. Why did, why did we do that? Yes. Why did we do that? Why, yes. did, why did that come along? Because we were trying to make yeah. the surface right. more compatible. Right. We we're going to be, I don't know if you know this, but back in the 80s, uh, NASA here in Houston looked at, under a microscope, in very elaborate electron microscopes, the, the layer of the endothelial. And they said there will never be a surface as smooth as the endothelial layer. We'll never be able to manufacture one. That's amazing. Within the same universe of the smooth, it's a single mm -hmm. cell layer. And that's what I was saying, if you damage the endothelial, it doesn't take much, it's only one cell layer. But it's such a single cell layer, like side by side, that they'll never be able to create a surface as smooth as that, because they were looking into it. For some reason, they, they're always into material development. Well, yeah, I mean, NASA's in a huge material yeah, development. I mean, the and they looked at the endothelial level and said, we'll, we'll uh, never be able to come close I mean, to, the, to the smoothness of it. But it does many more things than being smooth. I remember it's releasing having, yeah, of course, it all does kinds a lot. Of, yeah, many things. But yeah. I remember having a, a discussion with somebody back in the 80s, like you were talking about, in mid-80s and late, late 80s, talking about how until we can figure out how to create an endothelial layer in these mechanical hearts, mm -hmm. thrombosis mm -hmm. was going to continue to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you know, that's, that's not a, a, you can trick it, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that's been the goal, the mm -hmm. direction we've gone, because I don't think it is creatable. The goal is to try and trick mm -hmm. the, but the, bio, our biology is so complex that we treat it over here, but do we really treat it over, we don't, we don't you know, it's very hard to replace nature. Very, very, right, very right, difficult. Right. That's really the point. Yeah. Very difficult. We have to figure out ways to trick it or at least satisfy most of what we're trying to do, mm -hmm. you know, but. Uh, well, we, I think what we try to do is we try to get through blocks of time. You know, we, we, we don't need something, for, unless it's total artificial heart, but for forever. Right. You know, mm -hmm. most of what we're dealing with is transient. Right, that's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm.
thoughts on uh, all of this, man? I mean, that was a great talk on AKI and um, just, you know, touching bases on the relation with the lungs and uh, the angiotensin. The organ cross talk you're yeah, talking the, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah was, so this one. Is this one. Ace inhibitors. With ACE inhibitors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The release of renin and all that. And, I mean, it just... You, you well, forget, the light bulb went off in my head. You forget I about didn't all those never things. think of it. Yeah. 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 I saw that I could anticipate yeah. where he was and going. It's, it's oh, just okay. a cycle. Oh, did because, you? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's you know. why I got it. I was like, I got it, you know, before you said it. Yeah, that's one of the more powerful systems in our, in our hemodynamic system to regulate fluid balance and, and blood pressure at the same time, because they're usually, usually related. Yeah. The, the kidney's smart, there's release running, we're going to vasodilate or vasoconstrict, and we're going to either conserve urine or diuresis because, you know, and both of those will work, not just one thing. And if it can't do that, if it's blocked or incapable of doing it or the lungs are taken out of the system, uh, and so no ACE, the ACE doesn't get in contact with the blood, you actually might have more of what it's trying to prevent occur, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you ever notice, you know, like I was saying before, how many drips some of these people are on? Yeah. Yeah, you get the evolved cycle four, of, like, kidney of, injury. Yeah. You know, vasodilation, then you're treating the dilation with pressures, and then that's harming the kidneys even right. more. Yeah. Right, right, right. We're really in a bad paradox with, uh, mm -hmm. and then if you go back to, a kidney gets injured, now it's sending all these signals, organ crosstalk, to damage other organs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how many times do we have multi-organ? How many times do you only see one organ failure? Mm -hmm. Almost never, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. we have, how many times oh, do you see single, rare. oh yeah. Very and rare. so you had one organ get insulted, but why are now we on this downward domino effect where other healthy organs were healthy mm -hmm. are now becoming more devastating. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So it's way beyond what I think our, our uh, understanding and our ability to control it is. We right. just live with it, I you know, agree. and try yeah. to work around it, I think. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We try part. to get, again, we try to get through an event, mm -hmm. try to get through surgery, we try to get through mm -hmm. their lung issue, you know, before, try to, try to give their lungs the rest they need or their cardiovascular system, as the case may be, VVVA, um, and get through that event before we have caused any more damage to these other organs. And I think that's mm. why when we see early recovery, generally speaking, and we can wean, we're better off when we mm -hmm. see them not recovering and having to be on it very long term, notwithstanding younger patients do tend to do better in those circumstances and be on uh, the uh, the centromag, you know, biventricular centromag for a year mm. before they go on. But, you know, it is, it, no one at 79 years old is going to get a biventricular centromag. They're going to be turned down because of age. Um, they're going to have, you know, they're going to be, 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 it's not going to happen. Um, and maybe even, you know, I don't really know what the age cutoff is for that. But, you know, if they're a renal failure patient, you know, they're, they're not going to be a candidate for transplant. They're not going to be a candidate for unless they're getting a kidney transplant. But if they have, you know, serious comorbidities, um, you know, it goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, my earlier thought, that young people are very durable and they can tolerate a lot. Yeah, well, they can withstand the injury or yeah. insults. And, and they can, right. Now, there's always the curveball that gets thrown at me where I'm like, you know, is this, this, this lady ain't going to make it. And then the next thing you know, she's somebody calls me and says she's sitting up, <laughs> sitting up complaining about the hospital food. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> really? Those are called you know? those are called winners. Yeah, yeah. and they're, they're, they're a little bit few and far between. But 
We have a mm-hmm. joke around the ECMO unit. We need a winner. Yeah. <laughs> we will say we need to win one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's because it's so tough. You know, I, I begin to see my, my opinion a little bit is you see these patients that are on for weeks at a time. Forget mm-hmm. about months, but just take four, five, six okay. weeks. And then they have GI bleed out of nowhere, seemingly. Mm-hmm. And they get through that. And then they have, you know, uh, 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 you know they have a, a little bit of a brain bleed. Mm-hmm. They get over that. Then they, uh, you know, it's like where, you know, it, it almost makes you believe this, that the Sears response is just every few days or so waiting to, to get another one, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's where is this coming from? I mean, uh, then they get septic for a while. Mm-hmm. Then they don't get septic. And then also they get septic again. And that keeps happening. And, that, and then you start thinking, well, that's residing in the circuit. A whole separate issue now, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, all of these things, the whole ECMO thing for periods of time is just really wrought with devastating complications mm-hmm. waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. They may not all happen. And maybe we'll get through them. And mm-hmm. maybe we won't. And hopefully we come out the other end. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think you, I don't think you know. I mean, you just have to keep at it until... I know. Either you just either <laughs> they, either you DC them or, or God DC them. It's one yeah. one one way or another is going to probably happen. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think Hopefully. that's uh, that's that's the issue. You know, again, if you're you know, God, I don't want to keep harping on the issue. But you're 21 years old, um, and you're having all of those you know morbidities uh, uh, coming up. All these complications keep happening. You know, it, it anyone would be extremely reluctant, short of having you know. Uh, 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 documented, diagnosed brain death, uh, wanting to, to to stop, but you know where is the limit of our you know resources for the sixty-eight-year-old morbidly obese smoker drinker, uh, not controlling their diabetes, non-compliant patient that we now are on day 13, 14 on ECMO with no real signs of improvement, but no further deterioration except for some, you know, minor things. Where, where do, you, do you just wait until nature take its, takes its course, which we know is probably likely? Should that decision have been made sooner? Do we start saying, if you meet these criteria, you get this much time to Mm -hmm. turn it around, but statistically we know that you're probably not going to, and then who makes that decision, and then how do we all live with ourselves when, you know, we know, and it's happened to me where I was convinced I was leaving that day, and that lady was not going to be with us the next day. You remember, you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. And a week later, she was sitting up, and she was mm-hmm. seventy. She was above seventy-five years old, mm-hmm. and that gave me that gave me a lot of pause, man. I was like, "Ooh, mm-hmm. I'm not predicting anymore. I quit predicting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to the horse track." So, <laughs> and you've seen that. Yes, I have. But we've also seen where it's no, but, obvious. Right. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to circle back a little bit to. Um, the inflammatory response and your experience, especially since you've traveled a lot with the use of RRT and why aren't we doing that all the time? If we know all the benefits that it has, why are we waiting until we are seeing a failing kidney to implement that with ECMO? 
Well, in, in our particular hospital, they get it almost right away. Mm -hmm. About 80, 85% of the people, mm -hmm. they get it almost right so away. So you have it as a standard of uh, care. You just, get ECMO and you get that. You better have really healthy kidneys. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're probably going to get some form of, even if it's not. But even if you have really healthy, yeah, even if you yeah, have really healthy well, kidneys, all you know, all the the inflammatory things that are going on. Mm -hmm. If if you had healthy kidneys, you're now doing yeah. so much damage to them, which right. you've now shown right. is going to do damage to all other sorts you're of organs. That is an excellent right. point. You're absolutely Tammy. right. You're Very absolutely good right. point. Uh, and, and you I, may you may actually have just touched on something that is, you know, if if you were to put together some type of study or incentivize other people to do that. Five years from now, we would look back and say, we should have been putting everybody on RT. Why weren't we doing that? And right. we do that now. If you're old as me and Joe, right. we look back on the 80s and 90s, and believe me, today feels like the 80s and 90s. We thought we were doing everything we knew was right. When you've lived long enough, you look back and go, you know, why were we doing that? Mm -hmm. Why were we doing this? We thought we were doing right. That's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So what you just touched on... I think this is going to be a major point yeah, that we What you just at. touched on, I mm -hmm. think, is, is brilliant because... We're learning that the kidneys, you talk about young people tolerating stuff, the kidneys are not able to, I mean, there is some conditioning, like you said, they're adaptive, but most of what we're doing is so sudden, so abrupt, the damage happens, and we're, right, we're mm -hmm. in a big downward spiral that mm -hmm. we hope we can get out of, and mm -hmm. sometimes we do, and I would say most of the time we don't. Mm -hmm. You know, at some level, we don't get out of it. I agree. I, let, let me say, to your point about we used to think we knew what we were doing, I want to say that, and then I'm going to, I want to address your issue about the, uh, about the continuous. I'm going to say CRRT okay. versus RRT, because I do think there's a very strong distinction. You have to be very careful, I it's think. Just generalizing. Yes, right, but right. I like to say CRRT, because I do think in these kinds of patients you're talking about, intermittent, uh, uh, you know, the kidney works. How often, do, how often are the kidneys working? They're working all the Most time. Of, all the time, 24-7. Um, they don't stop. So I think in, in a chronic dialysis patient, it makes sense. They've adapted. They go to the clinic. They get cleared. For the acute patient, it doesn't make sense. Because their kidneys aren't used to that insult, and they have no idea what to do with it when they have the therapy, and then they don't have the mm, therapy. Right. Right. Mm. So I think having continuous therapy just makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you have the typical peaks and trough, peak and trough of whether it be metabolites or 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 uh, it's uh, um, uh, uh, uremia or it's uh, you know whatever the whatever the issue may be electrolytes acid base balance and so mm -hmm. forth I can't think of what I was trying to say but um, but uh, 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 nitrogenic all your waste. nitrogen waste products yeah um, right. that's what I was trying yeah. to say right. um, thank you um, but. In the, I did a case in 19, it was 19, uh, 19, I believe it was 1980. It was in, in 1980. And I remember the guy's first name. I used to remember his, I used to remember his last name too. His name was Ricky something. I can't remember his last name. And he had been shot. And he had multiple uh, fistulas between his aorta and his vena cava. And they needed to go in there and repair all of these. So we were going to do deep hypothermia with intermittent circulatory arrest in order to be able to fix these holes. And so we went on pump and I cooled way down. And while I was cooling, I believed, because I was taught to believe this, that 
you know, you are increasing the viscosity of the blood, which we are when you're cooling, but you have to correct that, not thinking I'm already diluting them, and I would take off 500 cc's and give 500 cc's of Ringer's lactate or whatever we had, and then kept doing that, and I had this poor kid's hemoglobin, I think, out to five or four or five by the time I got to my circulatory arrest temperature. And then we warmed him back up again. And as I was warming and we, he was diuresing, and he did, he diuresed dramatically, like he had diabetes insipidus, I'd give that blood back and got it all back in him. But when I look at, back at that retrospectively, um, I don't think I did any harm per se, I could have, but I didn't do any harm because he was 21 years old. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really dumb thing to do. I wouldn't do that today. I wouldn't let the hematocrit get down that low, uh, 14, 15, whatever it was. Um, I'd probably not go under 21. I'll give you a lot simpler one. How many people, how many people have not seen the simple Sarns heater cooler? What does it have? On the heating knob, yeah. 30, yeah. 38, 40, and yeah, 42. 42. That's right. yeah. A million times plus everybody, time to rewarm, right over to 42. Yes. Mm-hmm. We find out now, after millions and millions of patients that have done on rewarming the water bath and rewarming the arterial mm-hmm. blood, because we used to warm to a bladder temperature of 37. Mm-hmm. before we came off. You know what you have to do to get a bladder temperature of 37? You have to be at 38.5. You have to be like your brain temperature is probably 38.5, 39. And we thought that was great. Why? We used to bring, if we didn't do that, we'd bring the patient to the ICU. The patient's temperature plummets. The nurse, the nurse for the next 24 hours is, is going crazy because she's having to manage arrhythmias possibly and trying to warm the patient and putting heater heaters on everything and warming any mm-hmm. blood she has to mm-hmm. give and it's a coagulopathy so mm-hmm. we were like why are we doing this to our poor ICU nurses giving them a cold patient let's bring them to them warm like mm-hmm. it's where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. so we warm people up how many decades of that did we do a lot. many decades of that a lot nobody thought this all there was anything I was wrong with still it. doing that 15 years ago dude yeah. well even when i graduated it's not that long ago 17 years ago um, from texas heart that was a novel idea i remember hearing a presentation mm. about the relationship just in general to the damage it was doing to the brain and the um, arterial um, oxygenator temperature, you know, mm-hmm. not going above 38, just from that perspective. And I remember hearing that talk, and a lot of people in the audience, doctors included, this, right. is, this is not true. We need to warm the patient. Mm-hmm. So it's a new idea. Mm-hmm. And I, Isn't I, that amazing? I say yeah. that because your, your thought about putting people, even if they don't have kid, poor kidney function, mm-hmm. The benefit of removing, you saw the slide. I mean, how elaborate, you could, you remove all there's of so it. much stuff yeah. going on with this Sears response. And mm-hmm. it keeps growing like a tree. And I probably could have grown 10 more branches taking each one of those out. You know, what does that mean, cytokine storm? That's hundreds of other things. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, neutrophil storm? That's hundreds of other things. What is the oxygen-free radical storm? Hunt, that tree could have grown all the way out to your backyard over here. So if you're able to take something and reduce this Sears response, whatever it is, I don't, I don't know if it's, could be hopefully come out with many other things. Um, you're not getting, one of the biggest things happens is, is a kidney injury. Mm-hmm. And so if we just say, well, these guys' kidneys fine, let's not, let's not take any, you know, maybe we're making a big mistake. I think we probably one day will find that out. Possibly. I bet, I bet yeah. that's a good possibility. 
Well, with that said, I'll, I'll say this, that it's humbling to be around you really smart people. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, w w I learned from these courses that we keep doing, uh, really my, my, the biggest lesson for me is how little I actually do know. Yeah. And it's a little bit on the frightening side, yeah. but I'm hoping that us and our audience uh, people that we watch this show tomorrow, the next day, or whatever it may be, learn something and that we take that just one thing and make these very simple incremental steps that make sense, if it makes sense to you, and add it to our practices so that we can improve patient outcomes even if it's just by a fraction, and at least we're moving in the right direction as we continue to evolve and learn and better understand these interrelationships between the various organs, the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, the ECMO circuit, CRRT, uh, plasma adsorption therapies, all of these things that we've been talking about for the past uh, several weeks. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what I think. Any, uh, what are your final thoughts? Well, I'll give you one more because it's, it's really kind of a thorn in my claw. Uh, claw. And we're going to look back on this. I Hopefully, think it's a thorn in your side. Thorn in my oh, claw in my thorn. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> uh, I think we look back on this too. Think about it, man, and, and Tammy and, and Joe. How many times have you said or walked up to an ECMO patient, or we're getting ready to do an ECMO, and we're deciding on what circuit to use, and we'll say, well, let's use you know this because it's coded. Let's use the the cardio help because it's biocoded. And then you realize, oh, wait, it is all except the cannulas. Mm -hmm. What do you mean, all except the cannulas? Now we've just negated a big benefit of what we just... So, and we're living with this every day. All day, every day, mm -hmm. people say, uh, we don't have to be, you know, heparinized because we're... And I, and I say, all except the cannulas. So this is like running a marathon, right? And you get 100 yards before the finish line. So I'm going to stop here. I'm not, and, and, you, and you haven't accomplished anything because you stopped short of the finish line. So, you know... They talk about, you know, demonizing one product or another. Why don't we get on the manufacturers to say, why are you giving us cannulas that are uncoated? Mm -hmm. You have the technology. You're doing it with your other products. Mm -hmm. Why are we, you know what I'm saying? So if you look back at this 10 years, you think to myself, why did we accept that? Why did we accept that we can coat except just the cannulas? Mm -hmm. Because every time we have, not every time, but if we, if you flow below two liters on your ECMO circuit, you begin, begin to get worried that if you're not oh, giving yeah. effort, why? Oh, yeah. Why? Because you might clot off. Where is the number one place you clot off? At the cannulas. Mm -hmm. How yep. primitive is this idea, but we're living with it every I've day. I've seen it happen many times. Yeah. People put the cannulas in, so, they don't have the heparin why are we, in. And next why do we accept this? Why do we accept this? Drainage. It's absolutely right in front of our face. It's as obvious as you can imagine, but we live with it every day like it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's a simple fix, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Coat the cannulas. Tell the can't tell the manufacturers. <laughs> you know? the I, just, I understand one manufacturer does. Is it Medtronic or somebody now? I don't has know. Heparin, has biocoated? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, somebody uh, does. I just heard it the other day. They have biocoated. I'm not sure. Not sure. I'm but not you sure know, you that. have the you have the Protect Duo, the Crescent, all these different ones yeah, come out. Yeah, maybe the Crescent. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I I thought I heard the other day the, the Crescent. Medtronic the Crescent. Well, the Crescent's I, the new Medtronic, mm -hmm. right? Right. Somebody said Medtronic has 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 biocoated cannulas. I don't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. How much about it? But yeah, I don't know. That's a great idea, though. That's but it's kind of it's kind of yeah. silly when you look at it, right? Right. 
when things coded, but there. We've had the technology I think over 20-something yeah. years. I think we could have this same final thought to any of it. It's not just part of the picture. You have to look at the whole picture. So just your point, it's not just mm -hmm. the circuit cannulas, for example. Mm -hmm. It's not just... You know, CRT is for the kidneys. It's for the whole body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Exactly. Right. Exactly. No, I think that's how it should be looked at. Yeah. yeah. That's a very on, good point. Organ, yeah. Was that your? Were those your final thoughts? My final thought. Men, your final thought for the day. Um, I think I think everyone should, you know, pay attention to you know what we talked about today and all the talks we've had and I think you know there's a lot of little things that we could absolutely implement into, you know, making, you know, every case better and. Um, making decisions on um, how we can um, take care of the kidneys because at the end of the day, if you don't take care of the kidneys, then it's going to be a, a revolving mm -hmm. cycle of inflammatory responses, hypoxic, you know, incidences and, you know, things that we could do to improve the patient, you know. Very, very good thoughts. Very yeah. good thoughts. Mm -hmm. Well, That's can I have good. a final thought to the final thought? I think we're ready to cook some crawfish. I wish mm -hmm. y'all could be here. Uh, but we are going to really enjoy them. And a bunch of our, our studio audience is also going to enjoy them. We get a, oh, I'm getting clapped now because we're ending it. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget next month, the New Orleans Conference online edition. Look for, make sure you get the notifications. Please do the Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube thing, all the stuff you need to do with it and uh, we'll get you those notifications, but that's gonna be a rockin' and rolling great conference online, okay? And so with that said, I'll say uh, happy Memorial Day to everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, salute my brothers, and uh, everybody be safe, enjoy yourselves, and let's go have fun for the rest of the weekend.